Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 62 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews a ring of honor show by show from the beginning. My name is Trevor Dane. I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Matt Feuerstein, and I am joined this week as occasionally by the Boston correspondent in a crazy swerve covering a show that didn't take place in Boston, yet he still attended it. You may know this man from his hosting of the five-star match game on the Voices of Wrestling podcast network, a show that has ruined my reputation among a small corner of the internet. You may know him from Joe versus the world on the Cubsfan.com, one of the great early wrestling podcasts. You may know him from his fun time pro wrestling arcade series of videos on YouTube, revealing wrestling video games, the bane of my existence, Joe Gagne. It is great to have you back. Joe, how are you oh, doing? Thanks. What a treat. What a treat to be here on a Saturday night. <laughs> yes. Th- th- thank you for rushing, at least rushing by our standards to get this one in. Thank you so much, Joe. As always, pleasure, I know, yeah. I know it, it, it's, it's, I always feel guilty whenever we have a guest because it's always, it's usually a Saturday night record, which, you know, and they, and they, and to- they have homework to do beforehand. Exactly. But uh, if you want to hear the results of all that great, all that homework we make guests and ourselves do, we have 61 other episodes on our own podcast feed that is on. If you just look up through the years, T-H-R-O-H on any of your favorite podcast services, or we are still on the Pro Wrestling Only Podcast Network, where if you want us with a bunch of other great shows, if you want us not to just be, you know, that's more like having us in the proper context with a bunch of other good shows, where our feed is just like if you're eating mashed potatoes for dinner and nothing else. And sometimes you just want mashed potatoes for dinner, but sometimes you want to be a civilized human being. Um, but apart from that quick plug, we only have one – This the show we're covering today, it's one I've been excited to cover because it's such a weird show with a lot of stories in it. But before that, we always try and cover the stories that happen between shows. And really this this time, guys, we only have one story, and it's barely even related to Ring of Honor, but I thought it was kind of interesting because the show we're covering this episode is uh, Best of the American Super Junior, which is Ring of Honor uh, – company that was born out of Philly doing a show in New Jersey. But about a week before it ha- the show happened, there was a uh, Jersey All-Pro Wrestling uh, promotion based out of New Jersey did a big show in Philly, one of their biggest shows ever. And there's some couple kind of interesting matches from a Ring of Honor fan podcast perspective. So I'll just go to the Observer for the report. Um, Jersey All-Pro Wrestling ran its 100th show in its history and its first show ever at the old ECW Arena in Philadelphia on March 26th. The show drew 500 fans, which included Samoa Joe beating Low-Key via pinfall with the Muscle Buster. That match had been avoided in Ring of Honor over Low-Key's reluctance to do a job for Joe. The main event was a wild cage match with Teddy Hart and Jack Evans beating Homicide and B-Boy to win the JAPW tag titles in a cage match. Among the highlights were Hart doing a shooting star into an ace crusher, a moonsault off the top of the cage to the floor, a moonsault off the top of the cage in the ring, and Evans doing a phoenix splash off the cage. Hart juiced from Homicide's fork, and then the lights went out. Loki tried to climb into the cage, but Jay Lethal pulled him down and made the save. Evans was then quote-unquote injured, leaving Hart to get destroyed by both men. Jim Neidhart, unannounced, did a run-in and helped Evans and Hart win the belts using the old heart attack finisher and ending with the three in the ring playing the Hart Foundation theme music. Hart got a gigantic crowd reaction. Homicide had beaten Lethal early in the show to win the JAPW world title, vacated when Dan Moth vacated it. So... Guys, um, 
First off, it, it, again, I think we mentioned this last time, but it's kind of funny that Homicide gets to win the uh, the v- title vacated by the running away, fleeing Dan Moth. But also, one, that, that, that main event just sounds insane with a, a Jim the Anvil Nyhart run into a crazy Teddy Hart cage match. But also, Matt, the only thing that the thing that's always weird is we, we've talked about before how it's crazy that you know, we kind of always wanted to see Low Key and Samoa Joe one more time. If you know, there was always reports that oh, Ring of Honor were, couldn't do it or were scared to do it, maybe because of the fear that Low Key wouldn't lose to uh, Samoa Joe. Yet here it and this is kind of reminiscent of when um, Low Key had his first big falling out with Ring of Honor, where the th- the, the story was he didn't want to lose to Homicide in a match they were building to. He wanted to do a twenty minute draw. And then they go do the match somewhere else, and here again, they they uh, can't do it in Ring of Honor, but they do it here, and Loki apparently even loses to Joe. So it's very weird. Yeah, it makes you wonder if you know it wasn't just Loki. You know what I mean? You know, in the with the issues with ROH, you know, obviously he has his reputation, and it's not just in ROH, but you know, you wonder if it was like kind of more of the the mix of personalities involved in putting things together rather than one individual. You know what I mean? Um, also, just hearing those results, it makes me remember how much crossover there was at the time between like a lot of the um, the big indies in in America. Mm-hmm. You know, just like how many of the, the shows in one indie really feels like they could be a show in another indie. And you know, the show that you just described, a lot of that stuff almost feels like it could have been like an ROH show from two thousand and four in a different universe. Um, yeah. And you know, you sometimes you see this. You saw the same thing at the time in um, in IWA Mid South. Um, you know, sometimes at a certain points, even CZW had a lot of crossover. Um, PWG did. Uh, just interesting how how much at the time a lot of these big indies were using the same guys in similar combinations. Absolutely. Um, but I guess we should just get to uh, the show proper because there's a lot to go into on this show. So the show we are covering today is Best of the American Super Juniors Tournament. It took place April 2nd, 2005 at the Convention Hall in Ashbury Park, New Jersey, in front of a reported crowd of 500 fans. So the first big story about this was just that uh, this was the first Jersey show that was not done in the Rexplex. And we'll go to the Observer for the reason why. Dave Meltzer wrote it at the time. The biggest news is the closing of the Rexplex in Elizabeth, New Jersey, the site for the company's biggest shows. The company got zero notice about it happening, even though the building itself filed Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection back in October. They are looking for a new location for the April 2nd show, which will feature a one-night Best of the Super Juniors U.S. tournament, with the winner going to New Japan for their annual tournament of the same name. Promoter Kerry Silken said that at press time they had not heard from anyone associated with the Rexplex to be told the show was off, but they are going to have a show on that day in a location as close to Elizabeth as possible. So obviously that did affect things because they did have to do a show for the first time in this Ashbury Park Asbury Park building. Dave would write in the Observer for this show. The April 2nd Ring of Honor show in Asbury Park drew 500 fans, which had to be disappointing, but Asbury Park hasn't drawn well for wrestling in a long time. The show started out on a bad sign, as due to the weather, with so many of the guys flying in from Los Angeles and the PWG show, they didn't even land until 7.35 p.m. The show started 35 minutes late. The weather was bad. There was no walk-up. Uh, we talk about this, actually, with the uh, Pro Wrestling Torch. The Torch would write... Attendance at the April 2nd Asbury Park, New Jersey event was down from what the promotion had been drawing in Elizabeth, New Jersey at the now-closed Rexplex. 
I can't say I was happy with attendance, Ring of Honor report, promoter and booker Gabe Sapolsky tells The Torch, but I wasn't unhappy with it. Anytime you have a building change, uh, anytime you have a building change, it's going to hurt attendance. The Rexplex went out of business with no warning and we had very limited choices, so we had to run Asbury Park. It is a great venue, but not exactly convenient for people who are used to going to the Rexplex. We also had really heavy rains that made driving conditions very dangerous and that hurt. It was just one of those nights where we had things going against us. I think it is a testament to our fans that we still had a respectable crowd there that braved the driving conditions and building change. So, uh, Joe, you have kind of a unique thing from this because you actually went here on a bus trip. So do you even remember, like, the weather or the delay or any of the things being described here? Yeah, I remember it was really – the weather was really, like, hurricane-level winds and all that, which – because I was on a bus because I didn't really – you know, you don't notice that much. Like it's not like I was driving or anything, but yeah, I remember just being really, really bad. And they kept saying like, "Oh, the the workers are in the area," so I don't know if they got lost or they just on their way from the airport. But yeah, that was um, it was uh, it was tough conditions. I was, I was glad I was on the bus. Yeah, and as somebody who's from that region, I can, you know, I can tell you, the Rexplex is a much more convenient location when it comes to like coming from New York City. Um, it's, you know, it's right off or, you know, or just coming off the New Jersey Turnpike. It's literally right off the New Jersey Turnpike. Um, whereas, you know, Asbury Park is, is on the Jersey Shore. You kind of have to drive a little bit of a way. Um, you know, it's not super far from there, but it's just, it's just not as immediately convenient. It's not as close to the city. And, and, um, the other thing is I am, you know, I'm disappointed that they did not have, the two most famous stars associated with Asbury Park, those two being Bruce Springsteen and Bam Bam Bigelow, who was, I checked, still alive at this point. <laughs> Thank God you did the checking, Matt. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to see that it drew so much less. I mean, obviously, sometimes we can go, oh, you know, I know we, Matt, you and I both sometimes cite the old, the old anecdote that Meltzer got from an old promoter, the idea that, you know, if fans really want to see a show, you don't. There's no really ex- excuse that can keep them from it. But I mean, I, I do think you know. It sounds like from a lot of different reports that the weather was so bad that if you were the kind of person waiting to uh, buy a ticket day of, if it's going to be kind of like a game time decision if you're going to attend the show, the weather might have dissuaded you from you know deciding. Oh, I'll go to the door and buy a ticket there. You might decide oh, I'm going to stay home if it's really as scary as some of this weather reports were. And of course, you know, moving around, like you just said, not as a convenient location, but it definitely was less than a ring of honor was drawing at usually up to this point for New Jersey shows, which were usually some of their biggest shows up to this point. They would kind of save for Jersey and, and the Rexplex, but. And there's another thing, there's another thing I want to mention about this, about this weekend, um, which is this was WrestleMania weekend. And, it's interesting to remember that ROH, like this is like the only year starting in 2004 where ROH ran a show, WrestleMania weekend, um, but they ran it on the complete opposite side of the country. I, I thought that was a pretty interesting thing to remember, just like because in 2004 they ran a show, you know, at the Rexplex when um, when WrestleMania was in New York, and then starting the year after they began their long tradition of WrestleMania weekend big events. Yeah, and one that oh, go on, Joe. That's just part of my impetus for going because it was like, you know, WrestleMania weekend just meant WrestleMania was on. So it was like, oh, a bus trip because I actually didn't go to the prior show. You guys discussed back to basics because there was a terrible ice storm that day. And I was like, oh, none, not a lot of ROH seeing going on. So I, someone offered a bus trip. I decided to go like, oh, it'll be a fun weekend. Watch this then go home, watch WrestleMania. 
But WrestleMania was in California that year, so I don't think you know. I, I think just PWG running shows. I don't think ROH was going to try to venture out uh, that far. So I guess they just decided the next best thing is running in New Jersey. Yeah, California was always like, you know, Ring of Honor would kind of expand their footprint as they got bigger, but California was always the thing you would see people on the Ring of Honor message board like, oh, look, PWG runs California, where, when is Ring of Honor going to run California? And I think, you know, the acknowledgement was, while there is some talent in California that we, you know, we might be able to save a plane ticket on, it would be a big cost to fly everybody to California for like a weekend of shows. And I don't know if they ever could have pulled that off, but maybe with big enough shows, but then would it still have been financially viable compared to what if you just ran those same big shows in New Jersey and Chicago or something, you know, um, I'm not sure, but so this show, it is a, uh, a very tight editing fit. Uh, you can do We've seen some tight editing before with ring of honor where to get under the three hour DVD limit, you know, they would cut out some entrances, uh, most entrances on the show are cuff. In fact, a lot of matches start basically like a second before the bell rings. So it's a very abrupt cutting. And so a few things get edited out. And I think some ma- matches, a- some of my match times, I always get the match times from like stuff like Cage Match or, or The Observer or Wikipedia, you know, re- Wiki Wrestling and stuff. And I usually try and keep track of the match times while I'm watching to see if they match up. On um, this show, some of the match times did and some didn't, which would leave me, especially with like, uh, the Dragon Soldier B matches. So that leads me to believe that there was some editing going on. Yeah. But uh, 11, the, 11 matches, oh, 11 matches on a single, a single disc, uh, DVD. That's, uh, that's unusual because they've had really like long shows with tons of matches, but usually they, they make those the double DVDs and this one was not. So they, they really packed everything in there. And I have to imagine they thought maybe because usually the double DVD sets were sold for like an extra five bucks. They yep. probably thought maybe looking at the results of this show that maybe it wouldn't have been the best. Like it would have been a good financial prospect for them to not only have a show that was already getting kind of mixed reviews for something we'll get to, to then have it be like an extra five dollar price and an extra long show to watch. Maybe they just felt like, you know what, it's best to just try and make this as compact as possible, sell it at the base price on one disc, three-hour show. But we did lose out on a few things, no matches, but like, for example, in the live reports, there's a report from a, on the PW Torch from Greg Chorom, Chornomaz, apologies if I uh, butchered your name, but he said, for example, the, super, the, the competitors for the tournament all got called out, introduced to the ring by a New Japan board member uh, before the show, I mean, before the show started, but obviously that thing, you know, on a different show, they might have left that in. On this show, you don't see that at all, because every minute here is precious, but something they did not, to my knowledge, edit at all was the opening match, which was uh, Best of the American Super Juniors Tournament first round match. Brian Danielson defeated Spanky via pinfall in 23 minutes, 59 seconds with the Regal Plex. So before I um, throw it to you first, Matt, for the match, I guess we should just, for people that don't have context, what this show was built around was the Best of American Super Juniors Tournament, with the idea being New Japan every year runs their Best of the Super Juniors Tournament, which is a round-robin tournament, goes over the course of weeks. It's in May, uh, right, usually? uh, I think so. With a lot of the great... To be. 
yeah, with a lot of the great junior wrestlers from, uh, you know, uh, Japan, but also from around the world. And so a few shows prior to this Ring of Honor, we noted that uh, Gary Michael Capetta did a little thing where he got in the ring. He said, you know, Ring of Honor is going to do a best of American Super Juniors with the idea being eight American. That will play into things later. Eight American wrestlers in a one night single elimination tournament. The winner would get a prize, which would be they'd get to be in the New Japan real best of the Super Juniors. So. That was kind of the, there was other big matches on the show, but that was kind of the big draw was supposed to be this. We'll get into the booking. I think prob- probably by the final, when, when we get to the final, we can talk about all the ways the booking went wrong, but this was, you know, a big match here in a lot of ways. So Matt, um, I'll just read you the observer first and you can kind of compare and contrast your, your thoughts to this because this is kind of considered to be the big match from the show in a lot of ways. Um, the Observer wrote, first off, Dave wrote Black Danielson, which I think is an interesting typo. Uh, Black Danielson beat Spanky in what was said to be the best opening match in the history of the company. In 29, 23 minutes, 59 seconds, ended up being the best match of the night. Most reports had it at four and a half stars, with us getting reports even saying it was the best match in company history and a better opening match than even Jushin Liger versus Brian Pillman at Super Bowl in 1992 or Bret Hart versus Owen Hart at WrestleMania in 1994 um matt uh, it's it's interesting to go back and revisit this match knowing how big some people that live felt like that and it'll be interesting to see after you talk to hear what joe how his thoughts especially because he was there live but matt this match is very fondly remembered what do you think revisiting it um all right well so before i get into that um i just want to so so i can can we all agree or i mean you know I, i didn't follow it as closely as i know Definitely, uh, Joe did, and, and I think you also, Trevor. That 2005 was uh, one of the lower points for New Japan. Like it wasn't, it wasn't at it. It wasn't near the peaks of its powers uh, as a global force in wrestling. Is that is that true? It was. I think that, yeah, I think they won worst promotion of the year in the Observer that year. If yeah. memory serves, it was around that time. If it wasn't, so yeah. I mean, w- w- when people talk about how, like, when Gato started booking and how you know, like Okada and the the back half of Tanahashi's career and Nakamura and stuff, like how that rebuilt New Japan, this is what they're rebuilding from. Like the damage is being done at this time right here. So yeah, right. Is this this is pre or post or during Brock Lesnar's title reign? Uh, I didn't look. I could have just looked it up, but I, I forgot. Uh, probably around that time. Yeah. Okay, uh, far. I don't know if it's at this specific moment he was champion, but same general time frame. Yeah, and um, and because like uh, so like because they obviously made a big deal out of the fact that they were going to do you know guys going to go to New Japan, going to be the best of the American Super Juniors tournament, but. I don't remember the excitement for this being anywhere near what the excitement people felt when they started booking the Noah guys and even the Dragon Gate guys. Um, you know, obviously New Japan was a bigger promotion than Dragon Gate, but um, you know, in terms of like cachet in America, I think people were way more excited to see the Dragon Gate guys. And definitely when they started bringing in like Kenta and Marafuji and of course Kobashi, that was a much bigger deal than any of the associations that they had with New Japan at this point. Um, and um, so, so I guess that would bring me to my question was, was this considered like, Joe, do you remember feeling like this was a really big deal when you went to the show? Like, oh, man, the best of American super juniors are going to get to go to the super junior best of super junior tournament. Like, did this feel like a big thing or was it just like, oh, a bus trip to an ROH show? Let me check it out. It felt kind of big. It felt like 
like there would be ram like important ramifications because I was a big fan of Japanese wrestling at the time and you know followed New Japan and I was like oh something I'm going to see live will have ramifications down the road in New Japan you know a company with you know not great at the time but certainly a very rich uh, a very uh, rich history so yeah yeah it, to me it, it was a big deal but you you're absolutely right the things like Noah Noah was a much bigger and hotter company at the time they started bringing them in right and felt a lot hotter than this show did all right makes sense yeah. I, I- I would just say, like, from someone just an outsider, um, I don't really have really strong memories of, of the show except kind of the reaction to it. But um, if you look at it, you know, all those other examples you gave, Matt, of it working better, those were all, like, big Japanese stars coming to work Ring of Honor. I think the difference here is, apart from one piece of talent, Dragon Soldier B, which I think we'll talk about later, actively detracted from the show, this show was different than all their other kind of workings with new with J- Japanese companies in the sense that they didn't really get anything like they book all this talent other than that one person is made up of ROH regulars like there's no you look at the roster for the show it's just a standard 2005 Ring of Honor roster with one bad ingredient added to the mix so right sense, and and, like, and, and black and black tiger being an, a regular ROH guy who has a new Japan gimmick yeah yeah, and in fact, one weird thing I was going to talk about later, but I guess we should br- we could bring it up here is something you know Gabe on commentary. He he, this is by the way also Gabe and Mark Nolte's last show ever on commentary for Ring of Honor here. So another little piece of history. But um, Gabe throughout the show, he we'll get into why, but he you know sometimes he'll be bearing this tournament and bearing various aspects of it, and then other times he'll be trying to almost defend it. And the line he keeps saying to defend it will be you know. We wouldn't have gotten great matches like, you know, Spanky versus Brian Danielson and, you know, Roderick Strong versus James Gibson without New Japan. And it's like, that felt really like a stretch to me because, again, all of those matches are Ring of Honor regulars wrestling each other. There there are matches Ring of Honor could have done on any show without this conceit of a Best of American Super Junior tournament for New Japan. Like, we had literally already seen Spanky and Brian Danielson, I think, on the third Ring of Honor show. We would see Roderick Strong versus James James Gibson again for Ring of Honor later in the year, having nothing to do with New Japan. So, but that was his one defense during the show. He kept saying, we wouldn't see the great stuff like Black Tiger without this this tournament. We wouldn't have seen Spanky versus Brian Danielson. It was just like, uh, I think we could. Hey, sometimes you got to kiss a little ass, you know? Um, Yeah, I understand. But um, as anyway, as far as the first thing you asked me about, which was this match, um, you know, this is definitely remembered as the best or one of the best openers in ROH history. And while, you know, I do think that what you were describing, like, you know, Bret Hart versus Owen Hart, that stuff, I think that's probably a lot of like, um, you know, being there alive makes something more special. And this wasn't that. Um, but at the same time, can you think of an ROH opener that was as good as this one up until April of 2005? Um, I would say absolutely not. Not No way. Um, you know, I would say before this, you know, you had the uh, Punk versus Homicide match from ROH Gold. Um, that would probably be my favorite opener. This was better than that. Um, I thought this was a great match. Um, um, it wasn't, you know, it was great. It was a great match while still being an opener. You know, like they didn't, they, there, there wasn't this emotional intensity. There, there wasn't the match didn't feel like it had a lot of gravity, but it did feel like, you know, there was a there was drama. You know, they worked hard. They, they, they the execution was great. I thought Brian Danielson looked really, really, really good here. Like just, um, 
like just his, his his selling maybe wasn't as good as it is on his best days, but his offense was fantastic. Um, Spanky sold really well. Um, I think Danielson, you know, he was he was pretty dominant. Like uh, it, it wasn't as back and forth as I remembered, but it still it had a good flow. You know, it was pretty long. It didn't feel super duper long, um, so that's a good thing. Um, uh, but some of the you know some of the specifics that I um, that I noted um, at the beginning, Gabe called Asbury Park a ghost town, which um, you know makes sense for that a Jersey Shore town would be a ghost town in like early April because those places you know they really come alive in the summer. Um, you know, and any, anybody from there, I'm not saying they're not worth going to in the in the winter time, but you know, like the the the, the summer is a big a big time for the Jersey Shore. Also, I I know that Asbury Park had a rep for many years of sort of being in a a down a downtrodden city. So, like, fun fact about Asbury Park, um, or very sad fact about it, I don't know. Um, so I'm a Bruce Springsteen fan. I mentioned him already, but um, he has a song called "My City of Ruins," which became famous when he sang it at the telethon right after 9-11 you know like just you know my city of ruins come on rise up but the truth was you know even though that song sounds like it was about 9-11 it's actually was written about asbury park um like the year before that just about how it was a um you know like a town that needed to kind of rise from the ashes a little bit and from all accounts at least at some point in the years after this it kind of did um but uh, I don't know what state it was in in 2005. But Gabe called it a ghost town. Um, I'm sure that the bus, uh, Joe, didn't give you a, a deep tour of the city of Asbury Park. But um, but that's uh, that's what Gabe says about it. Um, and I think then, Gabe was trying try, probably – oh, sorry. I was just going to say I think Gabe was probably trying to do the ghost town thing just because we, I guess we should mention that like – there are this this building was an interesting looking building where it had like it was better lit than it wasn't in total darkness like most recent Ring of Honor shows and you could kind of see a, there's like big bleachers and there was a bunch of empty seats in the bleachers so I felt like that was almost Gabe trying to say like this is why you see empty seats <laughs> yeah I mean I noted that too so this is the same building that they had ECW living dangerously in uh, 1998 and 99. And, um, yeah, it's interesting to see them in a bigger building that they obviously couldn't fill. You know, they had to go there because that's, that's where they got to go. You know, they didn't really have much of a choice. But because of that, you know, there, there were obviously empty seats. I guess they couldn't set up the camera in a way that just didn't show that. Um, but, but yeah, like you could definitely like, it definitely looked familiar. Like if you, if you remember those ECW shows, um, but um, Gabe also like he did the same thing he did in um, at Back to Basics where he was like, um, um, "Oh yeah, what could possibly go wrong? This tournament's going to be perfect." And then Nolte says, "As a Boston Red Sox fan, you should know better than to jinx things." Which I have to say, as much as Nolte can be annoying sometimes, I thought that was a cute line. Um, yeah, yeah. Also, Gabe called the 2002 Spanky versus Danielson match from ROH a classic. Um, Trevor, I don't know about you, but I remember it differently. Um, uh, yeah, uh, that, that, uh, that's a little bit of an overuse of classics. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're just too. That's too many classics. Um, yeah, but um, you know they do they do an extended feeling out period. Um, Danielson gets pissed off because Spanky keeps knocking him out of the ring, so he so he, that gets him a little bit more aggressive and. 
Then at one of the big um, moments of the match comes pretty early where Spanky whips Danielson into the corner and Danielson does his like walk up the ropes backflip, but he follows it with like this really big stiff kick to Spanky's chest, which the crowd goes nuts for. Mark Nolte goes nuts for. It was a uh, like just a really like memorable kick. <laughs> I don't know how to describe it. Just like looked really cool and the timing was great. Um, and I thought that was a lot of Danielson's offense. Like, just he does a perfectly executed surfboard and rolls him back, keeps brutalizing him with kicks, and you know gets more near falls. Um, um, uh, uh, he Spanky comes back, hits a tope onto Danielson, and he tries to springboard back into ring, into the ring. But Danielson catches him in a Fujiwara armbar and locks on the cattle mutilation. Um, and Danielson won't release it in the ropes, and he actually gets in Todd Sinclair's face after he finally breaks it. It really feels like the story here was Danielson just being extra aggressive, and I don't know if it was supposed to be the motivation for the, um, for the tournament or because he's in, like, homicide mode where he's just, like, super aggressive. Um, at one point, uh, Danielson goes after Spanky's arms, and he... And he's like wrenching them both back, and you can actually see Spanky spit his gum onto the canvas, um, which made me wonder why do wrestlers chew gum while they wrestle? It feels like it's it doesn't feel pl- like I don't know chewing gum for a really long time when it has no flavor. That's not like fun. Uh, there mu- there must be some reason because I see that a lot. Um, this is a rare double gum spit match because Matt, did you notice that earlier Danielson takes like a big leg lariat from Spanky and then he spits out what I thought was either tooth or a gum and then later I see the Spanky spot and then I thought it's got to be double gum chew and double gum spit. Maybe did they did they agree before the match? Hey, let's both spit out our gum. It'll be a fun. It'll be a fun gum kind of match. Um, they call that double bubble in the uh, in the in kayfabe terms. It's a double. It's a double exploding bubble match. Um, every, every gimmick has to be exploding now. Um, but, um, you know, a lot of my notes are just like, wow, he wrote really, he's really aggressive, really aggressive. At one point, Danielson even locks on like in a, as far as like a mid match submission hold, you rarely see it, but like a really intense hammer lock. Um, that, that's not the kind of move that you usually see like deep into a match as like a submission, but Danielson, you know, it's not, I guess it's not so surprising coming from him. Um, uh, one time, at one point, Spanky tries to like, do a do a Rana, and Danielson catches him and turns it into a like a butterfly submission into a butterfly suplex. Like just he's just he's just his offense is just so good. Um, uh, when Danielson does the airplane spin, the crowd starts counting along. They eventually lose count, but Nolte was counting, and he said it was thirty seven seconds long. So that's a pretty long uh, airplane spin, I have to say. Um, um, you know, Spanky gets some near falls at the end. He ducks a roaring elbow, hits a super kick, slice bread number two. Then he goes back up for a, sp- a frog splash for two. Then he misses a kick. Danielson locks in the sharpshooter. Um, and like this is this was the moment where I was like, hmm, I would have thought Danielson would have sold Spanky's finisher for longer, but he doesn't. He just uh, he gets him in the sharpshooter. Um, and he holds on even as Spanky tries to escape, and they do like kind of they work it for a while, like multiple reversals, and Spanky eventually makes the bottom rope. Um, then Spanky, uh, then you know a couple more back suplexes. Spanky escapes the cattle mutilation into a pinning combo, and that that's probably the biggest near fall pop of the of the match. Um, then they go into their trading forearms. Spanky goes for the slice bread again, but Danielson counters by putting him on the top turnbuckle goes for another suplex but spanky goes for a top rope slice bread number two 
um, which Gabe notes is how he won in 2002, which is good memory because I did not remember that. Um, but Danielson throws him off, hits a forearm, hits the regal plex, gets the win. Um, I thought it was a really good finish. I like how Danielson's establishing the regal plex. Um, I thought it was a, a great match, like not a top, top tier great match, but good enough to be, I consider, a great match and definitely the best opener uh, that ROH has done in the viewing that we have watched so far. Uh, Joe, you have the, you know, this was a match that also, I, um, cr- I'll mention the crowd really got into it, particularly those final few minutes. They were going nuts for the near falls. There was a big hot start to the show. Um, and obviously from those live reports, some fans were absolutely ecstatic about this match. Um, how'd you feel about it live? And like, did, do you, did your thoughts change on rewatching it all like 16 years later? That's it's always an interesting perspective when you have someone like you was, was live and is rewatching it. Yeah, live I was like, that match was excellent. That's in the pantheon of live matches I've seen. I you know, I put it up there with Briscoe and Briscoe and uh Paul London, AJ Styles. Going back, rewatching it, it's probably not that great, but it's still pretty damn great. I mean it's it was extra gratifying for me because this match was supposed to be on, I think, the first Boston show. But I think Spanky got signed right beforehand, so I never saw it. So it was cool to see it a couple years later. And it's just spanking Brian Danielson wrestling for 20 plus minutes and that's not really much of a review but it tells you all you need to know because they did just a really great match and I you know just had everything I, I kind of love about it they took their time the pacing was good like Matt said I was surprised how dominant Danielson was it wasn't really worked like they were equals which I mean they started the same day so <laughs> you would kind of think they were but there's just so many uh, the finishing stretch is fantastic I still bit on the cattle mutilation reversal there for the pinfall even though I knew the ending right there. I appreciated the callback to Spanky trying the super sliced bread. And like you said, the crowd was losing their minds the last few minutes. And, you know, keep in mind the show started late and people who were there had to travel through adverse conditions. So I think extra credit for them for getting the, uh, getting the crowd as into it as they did. But yeah, this is a, this is a, a just a great match. I would say if you've never seen this, I'd definitely check it out. In fact, according to the torch, I guess the inclement weather was why this match went on first because they wrote in the, in the torch after the show. The, the show began 35 minutes late due to, to due to the inclement weather that day. That's why Spanky versus Danielson went on first. It doesn't say what would have been on originally first, but uh, from the sounds of that that sentence, that makes it sound like they made it an audible like we need a really hot opening because of the late start and. This match, I would say, definitely delivers that. I do think it's a great match. Um, it is probably the best um, opener in Ring of Honor history at this point. I, I think it is. I-, I do still have a bit of a soft spot in my heart for uh, Christopher Daniels versus uh, Brian Danielson from uh, Round Robin Challenge, even though that probably in pure star rings isn't as good as as this match. But I still, that's one of my like kind of one of my personal soft spot favorite kind of matches that even though it's not a great great match it's still i just really love that match um yeah i kind of agree i think matt you were kind of talking about like this match it doesn't have like the emotional stakes It, it doesn't really have even that much of a story to it it's just two really really good wrestlers wrestling and it and it's i would say it's like like you said kind of like a low great match like a, i would give it like a four and a quarter i wouldn't put it on the level of those live reports that were saying brett owen i i wouldn't put it on that level but um i think the thing about this match is it's just a great mix like they do a lot of 
they kind of show you a lot of what they can do. They, there's some athleticism, a bit of flying. There's some real stiffness. There's good mat work and submissions. I like that Daniel said, you know, a lot of matches on the indies at this point, they do their opening minutes of mat work and submissions and then just forget about them. I like that Danielson keeps bringing submissions back into the match even later. He has like serious ways that could end the match. They don't, they just don't forget about it. And going to what you guys said too, I think the other big story of this match is how much Danielson dominates it. Because usually in, in tournaments, especially indie wrestling tournaments, you can usually tell who's going to win a match in a tournament in an early round by who's get, take like selling the most. Cause usually you kind of feel like, Oh, well, if I get going to get to wrestle later, I'm going to let my opponent really get the shine and have most of the offense. And this match does not follow that formula. Danielson kind of eats up Spanky for large portions of this match to the point where even late in the match, when um Spanky hits the slice bread number two and Danielson kicks out, Gabe even talks like, well, Danielson probably kicked out because, uh, you know, Spanky hasn't worn him down much in this match. And it's like, it was true. You, you could actually argue that in the st- from a story per- purpose that, yeah, D- Spanky hadn't hit much before the, the slice bread number two. He didn't hit nothing, but not, not compared to what Danielson hit. Um, I thought it was neat to see Danielson even break out the sharpshooter, although it was funny because it was not the worst sharpshooter I'd ever seen, but it wasn't a great sharpshooter either. And it was just funny because Danielson is just such a master worker to see him try something different and not do it like absolutely perfectly was interesting. And it was interesting just to see him break out the sharpshooter. Um, and like you said, Matt, too, just the great stiff kicks. This was definitely a phase Danielson was doing where he was bringing out a lot of really hard kicks in his offense and just doing them often. A um, couple funny notes from commentary. Uh, Gabe says these matches in this tournament are all under New Japan rules, and that means they have no bearing on Ring of Honor rankings. That's why he made a point to really mention, I guess maybe because he didn't want to have to give Dragon Soldier B a world title shot, maybe. Who knows? Um he also said that, um, although this is Mark Nolte, Nolte at one point says the winner of this tournament can conceivably have to go 90 minutes, two hours, or even three hours over the course of the evening. I love that Nolte was trying to keep us open to the possibility that there would be three one-hour matches in this tournament. Um, nice try, but I mean, I, I can't buy it. As opposed, to one, th- as opposed to one three-hour match, which Danielson tried to do a few months earlier. Yeah. <laughs> um, Overall, though, yeah, a great match. Like, definitely uh, worth going out of your way to see. Really fun match from these two. Maybe just not quite the match of the year level. Oh my god, best thing I've ever seen. Maybe that some felt, at least in our opinions. But but was it the be- was it the best match of two thousand and five in ROH so far? I-, I would say probably the other one that would that would make the the cut would be um, uh, Cabana versus Aries, the uh, the cage match. Um, and I think this match might have been better than that one, but I think I like that one better. <laughs> just yeah, it's just I, I, more impressive would, to me. I would give Aries and Cabana a slight edge, although of course, if you're, I mean, if you want a grade, you could say, well, they got to play around with a cage, you know, right? And, and it was a main Skype event. Attack. It had the world title drama. Like it was not really a fair comparison, but but yeah. but I mean, if we're just comparing what was more fun, I think that was slightly more fun. But they were both great. Right. I, I mean, um, 2005 had just like so many damn great matches in ROH. Like, just just wait. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be tough going through it at the end of the year. I'm already kind of dreading it, although it's a good dread to have, I guess. Oh, I'm going to see so many great wrestling <laughs> matches. But um, Spooky. So after that, we go backstage where we see the embassy of Prince Nana, Jimmy Rave, Fast Eddie, 
Oman Tortuga, but we see a couple new faces. The debuting Mike Cruel, who's, I guess, kind of being portrayed as their bodyguard, and the debuting Jade Chung. Uh, Nana says they had a great time in Ghana, and John, John Walters is going to be a great governor. He's proud of him, and he should stay in Ghana to run his businesses because he's doing a splendid job of it. Uh, now, now that, 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 that line confused me because is Ghana a business or is it a country? Because he, he said he's going to run my business. Yeah, it's weird because he is supposed to run the country kind of. He's a prince. So maybe he just maybe also- means like my um, my business, like like none of your business, like that, like in that term, not like literally a business. <laughs> maybe you, you, Matt, you have put way more thought into this than I ever have, and I am glad for that. Um, I also I also put in the thought of, do, would you consider Mike Cruel to be the policeman of the embassy? <laughs> At this point, for a very short time, I think he was. Um, Nana says he's hired one of the best pieces of security in my crawl. Nana says Punk has been going around talking about disfiguring Jimmy Ray's million-dollar face tonight. But he says tonight we actually have something in store for him, which we'll, we'll get to in a little bit. But first off, we get to the second match in the first round of the Best of American Super Juniors Tournament. Dragon Soldier B defeated Matt Seidel via pinfall in seven. Seven minutes, 46 seconds with a roll-up while he's holding the ropes. Uh, Joe, before we get your thoughts on this, I guess we should just explain who Dragon Soldier B was. That would be New Japan junior wrestler Kendo Kashin. Um, he had not wrestled in New Japan for a while. New Japan had just kind of brought him back at this point or was about to bring him back to their roster. But for some reason that I cannot figure out, he wrestled in Ring of Honor for this tournament and this tournament alone as Dragon Soldier B, which seemed to me nothing different than he still wore the Kendo Kishin mask and he just wore camel pants. And I don't know why they made that choice. We'll get into why he was even put in this tournament when we get to the finals. But um, I, I promise, I, by the I, way, I promised on Twitter that I would reveal the identity of Dragon Soldier A because, you know, this is Dragon Soldier B. Um, so I have it on good authority that the original Dragon Soldier, Dragon Soldier A, was actually um, – uh, President Joe Biden. <laughs> yeah. Well, now you know. That's why Kendo Kashin is Dragon Soldier B. <laughs> okay. um, <laughs> Joe, what did you think about this second Dragon Soldier? What did you think about well, – actually, what did you think about the match? And also, um, were you excited going in? Like, hey, you know – I mean, Kendo Kashin was not a beloved New Japan junior. He was not a per- – he was, you know, a former Best of the Super Junior winner, a former IWGP junior heavyweight champ. And he had some good matches, but he wasn't, I think, even at this point, like a beloved figure. But what do you think? It was still a novelty probably going in thinking, hey, I'm getting to see someone from Japan on the show. Yeah, like <laughs> no one was dying to see Kendo Kashin. But it, it was like, oh, okay, I'll probably never see him wrestle live ever again. It does have a weird novelty to it. He was rumored, because I think he worked the PWG show as well, so it wasn't a big surprise. It was funny when Gabe is like, hmm, what's up with this guy, when he's dressed exactly like Kendo Kashin, and he's like, I'm not sure about this. It's like, if someone showed up dressed as Jushin Liger and just called themselves Mr. Wrestling, you wouldn't be like, hmm, what is, <laughs> what, what is going on here? Uh as for the match itself, it was uh, a pretty nothing match. The first half was just Dragon Soldier B slapping on holds for a bit. And I think the highlight was, at one point, Mark Nolte says, this is like the BCS planning a wrestling tournament. <laughs> Gabe responds, I believe facetiously, what's the BCS? And then Nolte gives this very detailed answer to uh, to explain the situation. He also compared Seidel to Tito Santana when he slapped on a toehold. So uh, that was good. Uh, 
Seidel made a comeback. He did some good high flying, but this is just kind of a weird clash. I don't know exactly why they made this matchup. And Dragon Soldier B cheated to win, much to the the uh, disgust of Nolte and uh, uh, Gabe. So, yeah, I thought this match was average. And if I said like the last match, the Danielson Spanky was worked kind of different than you'd expect a tournament match, this was wrestled exactly like you'd expect a tournament match, but in the negative sense, in in the sense that. Uh, Dragon Soldier, they wrestle evenly for a couple of minutes, and then Dragon Soldier B just goes, okay, kid, hit your flips for like two or three minutes, and then we'll go to the finish. And like when Dragon Soldier P is down, it's like this match in terms of just the action, what you see, it's not that long. It's not bad. Like I, again, I would say it's average. But when you see Dragon Soldier B, and this becomes a theme for the night, when when he's not doing offense, it feels like he's almost a corpse. Like he's just like w- wanting to move as little as possible, and he's not sandbagging the guy. Well, actually, I'll get to it in just a second. He, he's just kind of like he's not in a hurry to get up. He's not in a hurry to do that much. And there's a point, actually, where um, Seidel hits a big dive to the outside on Dragon Soldier B, and he goes to pick Dragon Soldier B up, and you can see Dragon Soldier B then, at that point, just sandbags him like he won't get up. And so Seidel just stops and, like, takes a break for a couple seconds and then goes back, and this time Dragon Soldier B goes up. It's like he, it's like Dragon Soldier B just – he wanted a few more seconds. It was almost like he hit the snooze alarm on the match. It was like, oh, give me a few more seconds, buddy. I don't want to – I don't – maybe he – you know, maybe I'm an asshole. Maybe he got legit – the wind knocked out of him or something. I didn't seem that way, but maybe. Um, yeah, not much to this match. You know, Seidel gets to hit a little bit of oppressive offense, but then they go to the finish. Uh, commentary note, Gabe says on commentary, he says, Dragon Soldier B is an American, so he doesn't know what he's doing in the tournament, except it was New Japan's call. Now, that was a shoot, because again... This was going. This was kind of forcing Ring of Honor to kind of go against something they had promised because they had sold this tournament initially weeks earlier or months earlier as eight of the best American workers. That's why it's called the Best of American Super Junior. So having a, a Japanese talent in there to, in the first place is kind of going against the point of the tournament. But we'll get again on the final. I think I'll have we'll all have a lot to say. Um, other little interesting comedy po- commentary point other than uh. Like Joe mentioned, the BCS thing, which I think is another great example of how the Gabe Nolte chemistry at this point was non-existent, was is um Nolte and Gabe at one point in the match talk about uh Matt Seidel neat having potential, but sooner or later you need to start following up that potential with wins to stay in Ring of Honor. And Gabe says out of nowhere, he just brings up Trent Acid. He goes, Trent Acid had all the potential in the world, but he didn't deliver, and that's why you don't see him in Ring of Honor anymore. And I thought that was interesting because we saw Matt a few months earlier. Trent Acid, they did that one kind of little angle in a Philly show where yeah, I think it, the trios it, tournament. It was just one month before this. Yeah, and and Trent Acid comes out. It's like you know, you know, these Philly fans. It felt like they were setting him up for returns to Philly shows, but he never comes back. And I wonder if that was still in the plans at this point. It had. It, it had to like be. Was, why would he? Uh, why would he just throw in like an insult to Trent Acid? For, I, it's got to be that they were still planning on bringing him back. And yeah, another one of those 2005 things that get dropped. Yeah, but uh, maybe this match is selling fans wish they would get dropped. But Matt, what do you think about this match? I mean, it's not that much of a match, but it is the start of something that will build throughout the show. Yeah, I mean, Seidel tried. You know, he he did the you know he did a big moonsault to the outside, twisting splash. You know, whatever. But you know, the match just like all of. Um, just like all of Dragon Soldier B's matches tonight, um, the most rem- memorable thing about these matches is more like 
how pissed off the announcers seem that this is even happening. You know, like, um, like looking back at it, you know, 16 years later, it's like, okay, whatever. Like, this is not, you know, these matches aren't good, but it's not like the worst thing I've ever seen. But, you know, you can see how Gabe especially would be really mad about this and having to do commentary over it, just like that he had all these big ideas for this tournament. And then they're like, yeah, we're going to put this guy in and like his matches are going to be like, he's going to have three complete nothing matches um, to, to round out your tournament and he's going to win. Um, and like just out of the, out of nowhere where they had no idea that was even going to happen. You could see why Gabe is really annoyed about that. Um, you know, as it is, it's not like, it's not like, Dragon Soldier B is the worst wrestler of all time or anything. It's just like he's not he's not there to do an ROH style performance at all. You know, he's just there to do like a sneaky heel performance where he get, gets the ropes and does all these little tropes and stuff like that. Um, and um, yeah, that's not obviously what, what Gabe would have wanted. Like, I think it probably would have been less bad if New Japan had said, okay, we're going to put one of our guys in and they're going to win. And then they just went all out and did great stuff like all the Noah guys did when they came. Um, but that obviously wasn't what they were going for. The, I mean, I guess the, the big picture about Dragon Soldier B we could talk about later. But when I was looking at Cage Match, I did not realize that this was the only show that he ever did that gimmick on. Am I right about that? I mean – I'm open to being wrong, but I came to the same conclusion doing the same research, which was he because when he goes back to New Japan right after the show, he, he's wrestling as Kendo Kashin. Right, and and Joe, so you said that he was on PWG. Was was he Kendo Kashin in PWG, or was he Dragon Soldier? I B? believe he. I believe he was. Yeah. Yeah. So like, what? Like, why out of the blue are they just going to make up this gimmick to, for him to do on one show? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I, I have no idea. It's bizarre. But uh, that brings us to the third match in the first round of this tournament. Black Tiger defeated Alex Shelley via pinfall in 10 minutes, 11 seconds, with a Tiger suplex. So for those people that don't know, just like uh, in Japan, Tiger Mask has been a character, the baby face. That's, it's been a character that multiple wrestlers have held. Black Tiger, his arch nemesis has been a wrestler, a character that uh, multiple wrestlers have held. And at this point, this was, I, I believe um, Rocky Romero had wrestled one match in Mexico before this as Black Tiger, but this was actually his second match anywhere as Black Tiger. And he was the fourth Black Tiger, and he had some huge boots to fill because uh, the original three Black Tigers before him were Mark Rollerball Rocco, Eddie Guerrero, Guerrero and Silver King. So, I mean, that that those are pretty great wrestlers. And as far as this match goes, so it, um, I thought it was a decent match. Like it was, it was like a little bit above average, maybe maybe around three stars. It was kind of disappointing for the talent involved, but it was a decent first round tournament match. Maybe the kind of match you'd expect from when one of the two guys is going to have to wrestle two more times on this show. Um, they do a lot of trading of submissions in the middle of the ring. Again, not really telling much of a story, but they are visually interesting submissions and they don't stay in them for too long. So it's kind of like an interesting from almost like a submission spot fest kind of deal, like variations of octopuses and surfboards, things like that. Um, the crowd was pretty damn quiet for this match, but it didn't seem like they were turning on it, but definitely throughout the show, there'd be a lot of matches where they'd be pretty quiet and some matches they'd be outright hostile to. And this is the first time I think we really start to notice it. Um, I thought the end was a little abrupt out of nowhere. It's uh, just 
Rocky Romero as Black Tiger doing the Tiger Suplex. And for some reason, even though the Tiger Suplex is a cool move, it didn't see, quite seem like that big of a move. I, I, I don't know. Like it, he uses it a couple times to get the win on the show, and both times it felt kind of abrupt. Um, and then the other thing is uh, a couple other things. Alex Shelley's mouth gets busted open. He bleeds pretty bad from it. And uh, commentary keeps acting like they don't know who uh, Black Tiger is, which I guess is something I, I don't think is necessarily the worst thing ever. But it is kind of gets corny when they keep going on, especially because I think pretty much everyone that was watching this at home, maybe you didn't realize it live, but when you were watching it at home, you knew it was Rocky Romero. And so the idea like, oh, we're getting this great talent black tiger i i I hope ring of honor gets to see more of him and how lucky we are that working with new japan we get to see this black tiger like when you go into it over and over again when we all know it's just rocky romero wearing a mask and doing a tiger suplex also roh fans are very very informed like i'm sure they all knew even even in person joe did you know it was rocky romero at the time I think oh, every, yeah, every, every, everyone. Exactly the same. Yeah, every, every, but also everyone just knew. Like even if he hadn't wrestled the same, like like it was just a known fact that he was the new Black Tiger, right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. yeah, yeah. Yeah, but instead, so you're like, we're getting a brand new talent, and it's so exciting. But Joe, um, what do you think live again? Uh, if, you, if you're a fan of Japanese wrestling, it is kind of a geeky thing. You get to say, "Ooh, I saw like the second match ever of Black Tiger number four. I mean, it is. It is like a legendary kind of Japanese New Japan gimmick, but the match itself, what did you think about that? I mean, it was, it was technically good. just really seemed to be missing something. And I don't know, maybe Rocky wasn't comfortable with the gimmick yet, or they didn't have a ton of time. They had like a bit over eight minutes. It was fine, but I'm really struggling to remember any kind of real details. There's no finishing stretch to, to speak of. Like you said, he just suplexed him and won. That's about it. Uh, I, I don't know. can't remember if this showed up on the show, but at one point... Uh, Shelley called him uh, Silver King as a joke, which I'm sure is very confusing <laughs> if you were not up on your Black Tiger lore. like, Or you think Silver King lost a bunch of weight. I'm not sure. <laughs> I, I don't remember hearing that, so maybe that wasn't on the show, but that's, that's pretty fun. That's pretty good, actually. Um, Matt, what do you think about this match? I mean, on paper, you'd think, oh, Alex Shelley, Rocky Romero should be pretty good, and I'm not sure if it got up to that level. What do you think? Uh, I thought it was pretty good. I, I didn't think it was any better than that. But, you know, not every match swings for the fences, and obviously this one did not swing for the fences. By the way, was this one of the matches that um, that was shorter than on your um, – um, on the live reports? Because maybe they just cut out all the references to Silver King. Um, I don't <laughs> – that would be funny. They just cut that out. <laughs> yeah. Like of he, all the things to cut on the show, that's what they cut. Well, he called him Silver King 17 times, so it actually does take up a couple of minutes. Um, there was this one point where we got on the mic and just said Silver King over and over and over again, and they were like, we don't need this. Um, but um, no, like I, I actually – you know, they, obviously uh, Black Tiger and Rocky Romero, they do wrestle the same as they are the same person. But I did, I did think that Black Tiger did a little more of the Matt stuff. Like I thought he kept up with um, Shelly pretty well when Shelly was doing his wacky – submissions and stuff and i enjoyed that so i thought the match was solid but unmemorable um you know it was just like like yeah like you said the crowd wasn't very into it i don't think they were trying to have a special match um which is fine i guess um but i i thought i thought both guys looked good like in terms of like their work um i can't really have anything to complain about as far as execution i just thought that they there wasn't a lot of um I don't know. There just wasn't a lot to the match. I guess they just did stuff. Um, it was um, 
you know, it was sort of like because you know Shelley's a big a big character in ROH at this point, and in this match he didn't he just kind of seemed like a guy, you know, like he just seemed like any like undercard guy, like he he didn't have the air of being a top guy, which he had been pretty close to being one of the top guys in the company for the past year and you really wouldn't know that from watching this match he didn't come off like a star even though this is sort of his return match after a month away um so that's noteworthy um like you know the one time he showed his personality was when like um uh, black tiger like took him down with uh, kicks and then shelly just jumped up and yelled fuck you and beat on him some more they also uh, at one point gabe was talking about how shelly was like apologizing to people and nobody's accepted shelly's apology but didn't punk semi sort of kind of like accept his apology basically like yeah he made a big, a big show of it where he was like you know he's trying and he was basically yeah. got the crowd to like give him a hand and i mean right yeah, the, the, the scene to go back and forth on that storyline commentary does on whether we're supposed to think that, like, Shelley's being earnest or is he being, like, sh- not really genuine and right. do the fan – yeah, it just, it's, just, it's just weird. Yeah. But uh, that's uh, – we're down to one last match in the first round of this tournament. And, Matt, I know you were you – were, you were uh, saying, let me go first. So I'm excited to hear why you, uh, what, what you have to say about this match, because this match is James Gibson defeats Roderick Strong via pinfall in 14 minutes, 17 seconds with a roll up. Uh, Matt, take it away about this match. Final match of the first round. Yeah, I, I remember this being a good match. Like, I, I you know, I'm not going to come here and say, like, this was a total shock to me. Like, I remember this being a good match, but this match really is like big time hidden gem territory for me like i don't think this match was as good as the opener but i think i enjoyed it more um i just was so impressed with what they did um in the match um just as far as roderick um you know i mean he really had the chance to kind of dominate and work over gibson's uh gibson's back here that was the story of the match and um which makes sense because um you know he has he's the messiah of the backbreaker and and then gibson just just selling the back in just a, a really brilliant way and I, I just loved it so so to start off um nolte again called roderick strong a policeman and then he goes but whose policeman is he wondering if he's softening gibson up for aries or for homicide because you know maybe homicide will win so you know the policeman plot thickens you know you don't know who's police he's policing for uh, no, never mind um who polices the policeman it's like Watchmen. Yeah, who watches the Watchmen? Exactly. Um, they're going to do a reboot of this match um, next year. It's going to be a, it's going to be a totally different. Th- I don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> um, but um, you know, so like Roderick, he gets he gets a chance to try to match Gibson on the mat, and he you know he's definitely not as smooth as Gibson on the mat at this point, but he holds his own. But um, he takes some time to just like club on Gibson and and then they speed it up and Gibson and Gibson takes him to the outside with a big running forearm and a tope and they do this forearm exchange and Gibson does a low drop kick and then he goes for a follow-up but Strong catches him with a backbreaker and that gets Gibson to roll to the outside and you know then on the outside they do the normal thing that they do in ROH when they go to the outside which is just run your opponent into the guardrails repeatedly and at one point, Strong actually takes a chair and like presses it to Gibson's back, but he doesn't hit him with it. I'm like, is that legal? Is it? Are you just are you allowed to use a chair as long as you don't use it as blunt force? I I, I don't know. I don't think so. <laughs> but um, 
Um, but, you know, Strong picks up Gibson, repeatedly runs him into the post, and that's really when Gibson starts, you know, selling the back big time. Like, he, he tries a body slam, but he can't do it. Um, and Strong is, like, working over Gibson pretty aggr- aggressively. Um, um, Nolte, his commentary is good. Like, he's putting over how intelligently Strong is working the match, but he's just yelling too much. Like, Gip, like Nolte, I think where, when he really goes wrong is when he starts to yell. Because, like, I just don't think that's him. Like, I think when he does the, you know, the strategic kind of calm analysis, he can be good in the right kind of match. But when he gets, when he tries to be Jim Ross, it's just like, no, dude, like, that's that's not, that's not your thing. But, um, so that was, like, the one negative of the match was when, is how, like, Nolte would yell to try to sell stuff. Um, but, you know, like, Roderick kept kept dominating. He like Gibson hit the ropes. Strong caught him with a big drop kick to the face, like a really nice drop kick. Strong got the camel clutch on. Um, you know they do another forearm exchange, and then Gibson gets the swinging neck breaker, and uh, you know he comes back with a brainbuster, hits a top rope rana. But you know after each offensive move, he's very very diligent about grabbing his back. You know making sure that everybody was paying attention to that. Um, there's one really cool sequence that I just thought was just like a really like just like these are good wrestlers that they could put this together. Like so strong slingshot Gibson, but Gibson like he lands on the second rope. He goes for a backwards cross body block, but Strong catches him, hits a backbreaker, and then throws him into the turnbuckle back first, and then hits like this really big clothesline for two. It was just—I I don't, I don't know how to explain it. It was just like it was intricate enough to be impressive and super well executed. Um, you know, lesser guys wouldn't have done that sequence that way. Um, um, so Gibson gets a few more near falls, gets a crucifix. Um, Roderick comes back with the double knees, followed by the big, uh, you know, now the sick kick gets for two. Gibson got the double underhook, DDT into the front guillotine, but Roderick, he hangs on, he stands up in the choke. Um, Gibson flips over into a sunset flip, but Roderick turns it over into the stronghold. And this time, it's like the real stronghold with the knee to the back and everything, still unnamed. But... You know, it's a big, you know, like the crowd really reacts to it because they've been working on the back the whole time. And Gibson really struggles to the ropes. Strong pulls him back to the middle. And Gibson reverses into a sudden roll-up to get the get the win. And that's a really good flash finish because, you know, you could tell Strong really deserved the win. But Gibson was the veteran and kind of pulled it out. Um, you know, if you're looking for a Roderick Strong breakout match, you know, this is this is it. Like, it's just super well put together. Obviously, Gibson, you know, was the glue to the match, but Strong's offense was really well done. He held, you know, he, you know, he held on with Gibson the whole time. He played his part really well. You know, this is the first match where he really looked to me like the Roderick Strong that, you know, we all came to know and consider one of the best. Um, and I also thought this was Gibson's best match so far. Like, he, you know, this is where you could really see what a special talent he was, despite the uh, really giant Confederate flag he had on the back of his trunks. I'm trying really hard to put that out of my mind because it just looks so bad <laughs> in 2021. But um, but as far as just the performance, I thought they were just both fantastic. I really love this match. Joe, how, how, what did you think of this? No, this is a really st- a strong match, if you'll uh, pardon the puns. Very, very good. It allowed both guys to do what they do best. That's backbreakers for Roddy and selling for Gibson. Like Matt said, the story's real good. Roddy gets to look like a monster, and Gibson gets to win because he just outmaneuvered him. He's the veteran, and I appreciated 
how productive this match was because it not only played into the story of the tournament, it also played into Gibson's upcoming title shot against Ares. And uh, a real funny commentary line is they're like, well, whoever wins this match has a ticket to the finals because Dragon Soldier B had to cheat. So you know, it's in the bag and uh, <laughs> the usual subtlety hammer of uh, Ring of Honor commentary. But no, this was uh, another very strong match on the show. So you would say that Roderick was a very successful policeman for se- setting up Gibson for that match <laughs> sure. with Austin Aries. Yeah. Um, yeah. Speaking of the subtlety hammer on commentary, Gabe also then immediately after the the Black Tiger match is like, it's pretty funny that Rocky Romero isn't here tonight. <laughs> it's like, okay, okay, Gabe, we get it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, I probably didn't like the match. Maybe a slightly less than you, Matt, but I agree. This is a really good match. I would say like three and three quarter stars, like right below four stars for me. Like it's it, it's really good. And um, yeah, both these guys look. I, I thought um, Gibson is kind of one of the things I wrote in my notes is the show recently where we covered a uh, homicide versus Roderick Strong, and we talked about how the match wasn't terrible, but wasn't that great, and it felt like that was a match kind of designed in the booking to be like a breakout for Roderick Strong. I wrote my notes. This is what I think Gabe probably hoped the homicide Roderick Strong match would be for Roderick Strong. Because I think not only is this a really, really good match, I think Gibson is just a perfect guy stylistically to make Strong look good. Because Strong has so many like cool backbreakers and kind of power moves and stuff where they look cooler if the, his opponent really gives a lot of weight to them, where if it's a match where it's really action packed, where they're doing one of those spots every seven seconds, like it'll be a really fun match. But if you do like Gibson does, where you're really focusing on selling and stuff, Roderick Strong ends up looking like a killer. And I think Gibson really does that well here. Like the match, obviously, like you guys said, it all hinges on um, Gibson's back getting hurt and, and Strong working it over. And it all, like, he, it all starts with just one backbreaker. And a lot of times when all of a sudden a guy goes from like his body part being fine to being like selling it the rest of the match, like it's really fucked up and hurt from one move you go, Oh, that's kind of preposterous. But Gibson selling on this one backbreaker is so good. You immediately buy that. Oh, he's really hurt his back. Like he's, his back's going to be the story for the rest of the match. Clearly. Cause the selling is just so compelling the little touches he does on it, like, you know, where he can't even body slam strong. But I like even after the match is done, he, you know, going back to, you know, we keep going back to how good Gibson is on the details. When the, Gibson has won the match, he's lying on the mat in pain and the ref goes to like raise his arm while he's lying on the mat. And he like pulls his arm away and winces like, ow, it hurt you just for you to try and like move my arm. That's how screwed up my back is. And I love that like even when the match is over, he's still thinking about the little details like that. Um, another thing I really liked about this match, there was a couple points and Matt, you described like the one I was thinking of where, um, there'll be a moment where a guy will reverse a move and you think he's about to hit a big move. Instead, they'll, they'll, it'll go the other way. Like you described where, uh, strong goes to slingshot, um, Gibson into the post. Gibson instead takes that momentum and just hops up on the turnbuckle and it looks like he's going to do a flying move, but instead Strong just counters the counter and then hits a couple more big moves from there. And I just think there was a couple cool kind of momentum changes like that in, in the match where you think, oh, the counter is going to change, but it goes right back the other way. And they did it a couple times really well, but they didn't do it so often that it felt kind of like it didn't they didn't overdo it. I thought it was a perfect amount. And again, Gibson selling so good in this match. And I like the finish even with that roll up where 
it, you know, it didn't feel like Gibson won by a fluke, but it did feel like Strong really had his number, but he had a veteran move to be able to roll up out of the stronghold. It was, it was, he had to do like this last ditch effort of, you know, veteran savvy to win. So yeah, very good match in this first round. Sounds like a match that hit the way you describe it. Sounds like a match that hit the four star mark to me. Um, no, almost but, yeah. <laughs> just a hair under. Um, um, but but sorry. No, no, you go on. I was going to say, um, what I really appreciated this about this, you know, like you watch wrestling and the guys sell injuries, and obviously, like as a non-athlete, you if you're not an athlete, you might not have experienced all the injuries that they're selling. I did throw out my back once about eight years ago. And like, it's amazing. I I couldn't believe how much you really like can't move when you throw out your back. So I really do appreciate the selling of a back when it's done well. And this was done really well. Yeah. And especially again, like the raising the arm thing afterwards, like people go, how's that sell the back? But going to your point, I think anyone that's ever really hurt their back knows that when you hurt your back, you basically have injured every part of your body because it hurts to move pretty much anything like any limb, your neck, you know, it's a wonder if you can find a position that just doesn't hurt. And just stuff like that was really cool selling. Um, after after this match, another thing that we didn't see live, but it was uh, apparently from a, a PW Insider live report by a man named Chris R. He wrote, live in the building, at this point in the show, Gary Michael Capetta came out to announce that the next New Jersey show would be in Morristown. And the big announcement was that AJ Styles would be returning to that show. So, Matt, we recently covered, I think on the last show, how Bill Barron's AJ Styles and Christopher Daniels' agent accidentally spoiled that those two guys would be coming back. So now Ring of Honor is just making the announcement themselves. And um, The Observer wrote about this announcement, actually. Uh, Dave wrote, Styles will be appearing on most Ring of Honor shows starting on the 618. There is still no clearance on Christopher Daniels. Now, I have to think that's Dave not being not being in the, in the know here. Because, one, why would TNA allow AJ Styles to work Ring of Honor again and not Christopher Daniels? And, two, I think on recent shows with, you know, doing the storyline of Alice in Danger carrying around Christopher Daniels, you know, photo and all that stuff like they had to have known by this point that Christopher Daniels was coming back is why otherwise like even hint at it in that way. Also the way they, the way Christopher Daniels eventually does return, you know, it's really, they, they really did make it a surprise. So I think that they really were invested in making sure that people did not know that he was definitely coming back, even though they suspected it. So I think you're probably right. Uh, another thing to mention about that Marstown venue, that's another New Jersey venue. That's just like too big. Like there's, you're going to see, there's going to be a lot of empty seats there too. Um, before they finally find the place in uh, Edison later that year. But, eh, you know, tracking the different venues is part of the fun of watching these old ROH shows. Yeah, it's sad Raymar finds one that worked for them with the Rexplex. And now, you know, we're going to go into uh, the next show we cover, which is going to be a show where they do in the Boston area in like another new venue where Gabe outright will say like, yeah, I don't blame the Boston fans for not showing up because we've changed that venue like a million times. And unfortunately now they're going to have to do a little bit of juggling with New Jersey at this point too. And, um, L- luckily, that- luckily they, they get Manhattan, you know, right around yeah. this time. And that helps. And also they were, they were remarkably stable in terms of their Chicago venue. Um, they really never had to change that up for many years. Yeah. The frontier field house, right? That, yeah. that was it. Yeah. So that brings us to, our first non-tournament match of the night, a no-disqualification tag team match. The embassy of Fast Eddie Vegas and Jimmy Rave defeated the Second City Saints of CM Punk and Colt Cabana in 14 minutes, 12 seconds, when Rave pinned Punk after Nana hit him with a steel pipe. Uh, Joe, this match went 
all throughout the building. Did it ever get close to you? And uh, what did you think? Was it a match where you even had good visibility? Because this is one of those matches where I imagine if you're in the wrong part of the crowd, maybe you don't even get to see parts of it because this match was a lot of crowd brawling. I was in the uh, the bleachers. They did not come near me, but I still had a good view because they had that kind of stadium seating. So you tended to have a good view of the action. They fought on the stage. You know, you had a good view of that. It felt very much like an ECW tribute match, which gave, basically brought up on commentary. A lot of crowd brawling. A fan held up a chair so Fast Eddie could have his head rammed into it. That was an old ECW spot. I, I, I like this because, you know, Punk hates Rave and vice versa. That's how they work the match. It was vastly different from everything else on the show. It, everything did make sense. Like, you know, the heels attempted to have outside interference right away. They didn't wait for like, you know, 15 minutes before they started because it was a no DQ match. And, you know, the baby faces had backup and Davey Andrews to, to fight them off. There were a couple of rough spots, but this felt like a fight. So I didn't mind if everything wasn't quite smooth. And I don't know if this came up, but uh, fans chanted Akabono at Fast Eddie because he had just lost to Akabono on SmackDown, uh, I think, the the week before. Wow, I didn't know that. I didn't notice that. Wow, that's really. That's... I think I seem to remember Colt doing like a like a sumo uh, pose to kind of make fun of him. I think that oh. got cut out. <laughs> so maybe they just didn't want that in this like blood feud. And um, <laughs> uh, I, I like how they had to say Nana had to cut the education budget. So uh, yeah, Gabe was appalled no that new... they cut the education budget. I thought that was very funny. Yeah, no new textbooks this year. We had the book <laughs> weapon of mass destruction too. <laughs> And, uh, and well, in, well, in, in America, in America, they 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 don't give textbooks because they're actually creating weapons of mass destruction. So it's actually yeah, probably better in Ghana. <laughs> I suppose so. We can get into the angle at the end, but there was something that was cut out that was, I'm guessing, not supposed to be on. Oh, I, I have a lot of details on that actually. Um, so for this match, I, I thought it was good. It was like not amazing, but a, a good, enjoyable crowd brawl. Uh, the cameras mostly focused on uh, Punk and Ray. They they split off, so it was mostly. Eddie versus Cold and Punk versus Rave. And the cameras mostly followed Punk versus Rave. In fact, listening to the An Honorable Mention podcast, did already did their review of the show long ago. And I think uh, Shane Hagedorn is one of the cameramen of that day. Um, he noted that when the when the brawl split into those two sides, both camera like handheld men followed Punk and Rave because they were worried about what would happen if like one of them didn't get the footage or something. So rather than like try and keep up with both brawls and then edit it together, instead they both just kind of stuck with what they thought would be the more important um, brawl in the match. I, th- I, I, I think that's yeah, kind. Of, it's kind of funny to think that like it was up to the cameramen what they were going to follow. Like that's not a very like tightly produced situation. <laughs> I thought overall, like again, it was mostly just punk and rave brawling, but I thought the brawl was enjoyable. And like Joe said, it was it was refreshing on the show because it was the one match that was really like that on the whole card. And they did what you're supposed to do in a few, which I think they gave a really good um, vibe of punk really hating this guy and wanting to do anything he could to get to him. Um, they, at one point, they brawled onto a stage because there was like an elevated stage at the end of one part of the building. And I always love when wrestlers brawl on a stage. It's just a cool visual. Um, Rave took a big bump where he got hip tossed onto a bunch of open chairs, which is the kind of bump I wouldn't expect maybe a guy like Jimmy Rave to take, but I, I guess that shows how seriously they're taking this feud. Again, nothing too special. I thought one thing that was interesting was, um, uh, listening to, uh, going back to an honorable mention and not to take away all the material because, but, uh, they did a couple interviews that I'll reference from time to time on the show with Jimmy Rave, and you should go listen to him because it's hours of really good, interesting stuff. If you're a fan of this era of Ring of Honor, he has some interesting 
stories and things to say. But one thing he mentioned when they asked him to talk about this match was all he said was he said something like, um, Fast Eddie was the hardest guy for me to work with because he says he just liked doing moves without reasons why. And he thought this tag match was actively bad. He thought the whole show was doomed from the start. He talked about the storm and the New Japan booking. But Ray really does not have fond reviews of this match. And we'll get into the post-match angle. Did not He and Puck apparently did not think fondly of that either. But I actually thought the match was, not, while not amazing, was better than he, he kind of gave the impression of talking about he did he did not remember this being a good night for the feud but uh matt what did you think um it's not really my thing this match but you know they kept it moving um you know like there was you know it was never like dead you know or dull they 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 they, they ran you know there was a lot of literal movement and just you know a lot of stuff going on so i guess that's kind of what you want in a match like this right um Mm -hmm. i wonder if gabe specifically said let's do an ecw style brawl here to you know as in honor of the ecw pay-per-views because gabe during the match actually references the old pay-per-views in this building and i actually remember you know some of the new new jack dives from this building i think there was uh at living dangerously 98 it was him and spike dudley and they dove off a balcony together um that's uh you know because um but um but as far as the match you know i mean you gave most of the um the highlights some of the other highlights that i've that i noted um uh, gabe says that walters has given up his wrestling career because he's going to stay in ghana and be a governor um which is just like wow giving up his wrestling career everyone it's funny the way they write guys out like either a car accident or just like i have decided at this moment i am never going to wrestle again because i am going to be a governor in ghana like just very dramatic um but um tortuga uh do you notice that he's looking bigger and buffer here like he just seems like like a big buff dude now or as opposed he was kind of like he was muscular before but he didn't seem like intimidating or imposing and he definitely is bulked up a bit. Mike Krull scared him, Matt. He, he yeah, he's got right. he's worried he's worried he's getting phased out. He's got he's got to put on some muscle. That's right. Santiago, I guess, is still injured. Um, at one point, when Eddie is beating up Cabana in the crowd, he looks at a handheld camera and says, "Smile for the camera, motherfucker," which goes against his gimmick because he's not supposed to be able to see that there's a camera there. Um, but um, you know, a few other things. Um, at, w- at one point. Um, Cabana picks up Eddie and yells for Punk to give him a knee. Um, like when when like Cabana is in the crowd and Punk is uh like in the ringside area. So Punk drops down. Uh, so Punk like pick like puts up his knee almost in like a backbreaker position, and Cabana drops Eddie over the guardrail onto Punk's knee, and Punk yells, "My knee!" in pain. And it's like it doesn't <laughs> seem smart to have someone else drop something on your knee because they can't really control uh, like how it's dropped, and that could actually very badly injure your knee. And hasn't Punk always sort of had a kind of a, a bad knee? Um, yeah. So that didn't it seem like to you like like he was kind of like hesitant to do it when Colt called for it. Like, yeah. Don't you know I have a bad knee? <laughs> like, yeah. But I'd also expect Punk to be the kind of guy that would just be like in front of everybody. Like, no, I'm not going to do that. Are you crazy? <laughs> um, but um, but anyway, back in the ring, um, you know they they do their they do their stuff. Um, uh, and when Tortuga comes uh, comes in to. Uh, to uh, stop Punk after he uh, hits the superplex, Andrews spears him, and I feel like this might be Andrews' like highest profile moment in ROH is like him getting involved in this big feud between uh, CM Punk and the Embassy, and having that big spot where he stops Tortuga. 
I, I don't know. I feel like – I mean I guess we'll find out, but I, I feel like that's probably his biggest moment, um, period. So I guess that's one thing that's noteworthy about the match. But uh, the one negative thing I would say is um, uh, Chung is uh, is in the ring at the end. And first of all, so this is Jade Chung's debut. And um, and Nana is like really aggressive with her to get down and take a knee at the beginning. I'm um, not take a knee, like take two knees and and uh, to be have, the footstool. Be the footstool, exactly. Um, thank you. And um, he gets really aggressive. And I, you know. I don't totally have a problem with like heels doing something horrible. It's more just like the crowd not treating it as a heel move. That's the part that always makes it extra, you know, queasy for me. Just that, you know, whenever you have the fact that there are people in the crowd that are cheering, like, yeah, let her get down on her hands and knees, you know, um, that's the part that just makes me say, eh, maybe this wasn't worth doing. But um, but at the end of the match, she's in the ring, and uh, she pulls Punk off of, of Rave by the hair, and Gabe says, oh, this is going to have a happy ending for Jimmy Rave. And that just made me groan. It, as, uh, as Dragon Soldier A would say, come on, man. Um, but, <laughs> come on, Larky, says Dragon Soldier A. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but... Um, you know, um, when when Chung slaps Punk, he 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 like gets her up for a pile driver. Um, um, well, I guess you're. I guess um, he's um, he 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 kind of circles around like kind of like um, when Tommy Dreamer did the pile driver on Beulah, if you remember, where he kind of has her like splayed like upside down with her like legs apart and like kind of just turns to the crowd. To like to show her off to everybody, that's sort of what Punk does, and you know that whole thing. The whole thing just makes me not feel great. Like I, I, I just, I just don't love that stuff. Obviously, as we've established in many, many episodes of through the years, um, but uh, but that's you know leads to the ending where Nana comes in and hits Punk with the air freshener cannon and Rave wins. Um, yeah, like I said, not a huge fan of that kind of match, but they kept it moving. It was, it was, it was good for what it was. See, I felt like um, that 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 might have actually been um, Punk like doing the spinning her around while he had her in the pile driver position, stalling for time. Because like, to me, it kind of felt like Punk was supposed to get her up for the pile driver, and that's when Nana was supposed to hit her with the pipe, and he wasn't showing up in time. Because something I've heard from people is that Nana, while a great guy and a really good manager in a lot of ways, would often kind of not miss his cue. He would miss his cues on spots he was supposed to be involved in in fact there will be a different match in the punk ray feud where he kind of famously screws up a spot and so part of me was wondering was punk doing that to like show jay chung off and he's rotating around with her or is he kind of like i have her in the pile drive position like where is he like he because uh, it's not until he basically does like a full rotation then finally like nana gets in there and hits him with the pipe well whether it was intentional or not it was very reminiscent of tommy dreamer and Bueller. yeah yeah either way yeah the same result but um, so after the match is over, Nana gets on the mic to announce Rave as the winner. And then he and Rave pull out a cheese grater, I believe, out of Rave's robe. Uh, Nana notes on the mic that Punk has said tonight that he was going to disfigure Rave. And then Rave starts using the cheese grater on Punk's straight edge stomach tattoo. Gabe goes nuclear Gabe level red on this, just over the top screaming about disgusting and we cut away pretty quickly from this we don't really see anything at all um gabe has so still gabe tell- has to have learned i mean maybe he has by, by now but like the the more like over the top his yelling is 
the less serious those angles seem, you know? Yeah. So this angle is, um, it, it's remembered, I, I guess, as not fondly as kind of a, a, a corny, weird angle that didn't work. And I believe neither rave nor punk think of it this moment fondly. And we'll get, there's a, there's a crowd reaction we'll get into after, but I guess first just talking about the angle, um, it's working. I appreciate the idea because when you think about it, wrestling has a grand tradition of wrestlers getting like maimed angles, like getting blinded, you know, losing your hair, getting a cut, get all this stuff. And Punk and Rave had already done one of those. They already had an angle where Rave blinded Punk with the air freshener. So trying to do a new version of that, the idea of like I'm gonna slice off your 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 tattoo is an interesting outside the box thing. I think the problem is one, it's hard to really do that in a really striking visual way, especially like if you're not gonna show anything. And obviously, I'm not expecting these guys to like blade their stomachs or anything stupid like that. But at the same time, it doesn't you don't really see anything. And um, also. Punk is a guy that has so many tattoos. Maybe this is the wrong way to think of things. I speak as a guy that has zero tattoos. But, like, we'll get into it later when he does a promo. But they're they're really trying to sell this as, like, Rave is trying to take CM Punk's identity. And he's, you know, taking the feud to a new level. And Punk is super pissed. And I don't know, for a guy that, I mean, CM Punk has a lot of tattoos. He has a Pepsi logo. He has the Cobra from G.I. Joe logo. Like, I don't believe that, like, getting one tattoo scraped up is, like, the worst thing that could ever happen to him. I don't know. They're, but don't, but don't you, but don't, but don't you, but don't you know, in the, in the upcoming promo, he says that it's even worse than beating up his girlfriend. or trying to blind yeah, him. Yeah. Like I was going to say, Matt, if I was going to rank, um, someone attacks a, a girlfriend of mine, someone beat, uh, uh, temporarily blinds me or, or, um, someone like scrapes my tattoo scraping my tattoo would be a distant third where this angle and punk's promo will get to it as you just said tries to sell that this is actually the the by and large by far the worst of the three this, right this is beyond the pale those takes his whole things, identity you know, yeah and, and and um i, I would rather someone take my i would rather more. i would rather somebody like i don't know um I don't want to say steal my identity like in the literal sense because I don't want anyone taking my social security number, but <laughs> like like taking something about about me that makes me who I am, like I don't know my my hair, and then then somebody blinding me. I, you know, I'd rather I would rather the the former than the latter. Yeah. Um. So I, that that brings us to what happened afterwards, Joe. I want Europeans on it, but I guess we should describe what happened first because obviously you had some. I have some written reports from people, including one guy named Joe Gagne, about what happened live. So we'll get to this. And I'll just mention first off, this is something that did not make the DVD. So this is all from live reports and things like that. I think you'll understand why it didn't make the DVD once I talk about it. Well, first, we'll go to The Observer. There was an incident on the April 2nd show in Asbury Park, New Jersey, where CM Punk went after a fan. It was after an angle where the embassy, who they are trying to elevate from prelim comedy to serious heel status, tried to use a cheese grater to apparently slice off Punk's tattoo on his stomach. Apparently, the angle didn't go over well because a lot of people didn't understand what was being done. Plus, it took a lot of time. Uh, plus, it took a long time. Longtime regular fan Andrew Kessler, who can be heard making wise comments and heckling wrestlers on Ring of Honor DVDs, screamed at Punk as he left the ring, quote, Are you bleeding yet? Then why should I care? Unquote. Punk looked at Kessler, who heckled back, and Punk jumped the rail to confront Kessler. That was no surprise. 
hands. But it was when Punk shoved him down and started putting the boots to him while screaming, do you care now? A sea of security guards were in there quickly. It's very strange, only because Punk is likely heard far worse on a regular basis out of the crowd. Others who saw it thought it might have been an angle. It wasn't. Only because they were surprised to see Punk get violent with, when the fan had done nothing but heckle. The general rule of thumb wrestlers go by is if a, if a fan hops the rail, they are a fair game. But if they're on the other side, no matter what they say, all you should do is yell back. Next, we go to a PW Insider live report from Chris R., who wrote that after the match was over, a fan of the audience yelled out something about not caring if Punk bled. Punk went out into the audience after the fan and attacked him until Ring of Honor officials broke it up. This is why I'm including his live report. This is why I thought was interesting. Cameras got the whole thing, so it looks like part of an angle that Punk is going crazy because of the embassy. And finally, we'll go to uh, Joe Gagne's live report. Joe, at the time, you wrote... I'll steal. I'm stealing your own scoops, Joe. Uh, Joe wrote, if this was legit, then Punk is an idiot. Yeah, I can understand and sympathize with wanting to punch some fans in the face, but you can't cross that line. And why would the guy get tossed? He was just being a pain in the ass. If it's an angle, and I've heard the guy is a trained wrestler, and the fan, quote-unquote, joins the embassy, then it's even dumber. Have any of Ray of Honor's shoot angles ever gone anywhere productive, ever? Um, and Joe, you also wrote in your live reports, and this also didn't make it uh, to the DVD. Punk also trashed the entranceway in anger. Um, Joe, what was this like live? Like, uh, I mean, no one describes basically how severe this was. Do you remember, like, how physical did this get? Like, the reports says put the boots to a fan. I don't. I didn't have a good view. I didn't see him like attack him. I just saw him. Like run in the stands and go after him and be swarmed by security, and like everyone in the area was talking like, "Oh, this must be another angle because this is the kind of thing Ring of Honor loves to do." We could a see riot! The it was a riot. <laughs> yeah, kind of it was one man riot. Yeah, and then Punk trashed the entranceway. We just thought it was a, kind of a probably another dumb shoot because Punk was you know the rumors were there. He was in trunks at this time. He was close to getting signed by WWE. So why would you? risk that by going after some moron fan like it, it so that yeah, we go like oh another shoot angle but it it wasn't which is very very strange uh, yeah this is one of those things where he was lucky he did it back then because back then you know even in the observer and stuff it's just kind of oh you get this error of reading dave's report that thought you know you shouldn't have done that but you know no one really comes out that hard against it where i feel like if in 2021 if a wrestler jumped into a crowd if there were crowds um and 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 attacked a fan for doing what in the grand scheme of things is kind of a dickish insensitive heckle but isn't like the uh, it wouldn't be in the top 50 worst things i've heard of a fan say at a wrestling show um i, I feel like the reaction would be a lot and the repercussions would be a lot different and it'd be the, it'd be the talk I'm, of tw- it'd be the talk of twitter for a few days Exactly. And, and I'm sure, you know, you know, Punk is a guy, he's probably full of adrenaline from just working the match. I'm sure he, want, you know, had a big investment in wanting this angle to go well. I've heard people talk about this was a stressful time in his life because, you know, he was trying to, you know, on a diet and build muscle to try and get into WWE. And I don't know if this had happened yet, but this around this time he breaks up with Tracy Brooks. And apparently it wasn't a great breakup from, from what I've heard or whatever on podcasts or whatever, just anecdotes. Who knows if that's true or not, but I can see, you know, him being in a bad mood, but I don't think there's ever any justification for physically assaulting a fan for heckling, especially if it's not something that's really very personal at all. But yeah, uh, Matt, yeah. do you have any thoughts on this? Like, uh, no, I, I, um, 
Yeah, I, it's inexplicable. But I guess, you know, uh, if you're going to try to psychoanalyze somebody that you've never met before, it um, sounds like they weren't happy with the angle. There's frustration involved. It was a rough day. Um, uh, and uh, he just kind of maybe just was what just it was just a straw that broke the camel's back. That's the only thing I could think of. Actually, going back to you, Joe, going back to the cheese grater, like, did you like they were saying, you know, Dave's live report thing said, oh, it didn't get over in, in part because fans didn't really know what was going on. It took a long time. I'll note that on the DVD, they show very little of the cheese. It barely lasts anything before they cut away. And um, watching it live, do you remember? Like, did you know at the time what was going on? Like, did you clearly see, oh, that's a cheese grater? Or did it just look like Jimmy Rave was giving CM Punk a telling me rub and he wasn't enjoying it? Like, no, I, I had a good view. I, I, I figured out what was happening. But if you had a, a bad angle, you would have no idea what was happening. Like, <laughs> giving him a massage on his. His stomach, it would appear, if you were like at a bad angle. So, How long like, did I it go on? That. How long did it go on live? I don't think it went that long. Uh, you know, I, they, you know, used the cheese grater on him and left. Is is my memory, but this this was quite a long time ago. It is interesting, though. I thought the one last thing was going back to that PW Insider live report that said that cameras got the whole thing. I wonder if that was deleted or if there. I have seen, you know clips of things that have never made ring of honor dvds i am wondering if there's somewhere in a vault somewhere on someone's dusty old hard drive if there's actually video of cm punk assaulting a fan because i would imagine if i was running a company that'd be the kind of thing i would delete immediately but if cameras really were filming and i mean i guess technically there's a possibility it still is out there somewhere footage of cm punk actually doing this i've never seen it if such a thing exists but it's it's a weird little thing that happened anyway Whereas if, if or as or as if smartphones were more common by then, there would be a million or or not a million, but like a couple hundred people that had footage of it. Exactly. Yeah. Another reason he was lucky he did it back then and not now. Yeah. But um, we go backstage to Gary Michael Capetta. This is intermission, and he's joined by B.J. Whitmer. B.J. is wearing a shirt that says "Pro Wrestlers Fake Orgasms," which, when I was writing my notes, I thought, "Can a man fake an orgasm?" It seems like there's usually. I don't know. There's evidence you shall. Let's just say without getting <laughs> making this podcast X-rated. I, I don't know. Anyway, um, BJ says he's no. Let's go into it. No, let's let's go into it. No, I'm just kidding. Okay. I mean, uh, if you use a prop, you could fake it. I don't know. Um, uh, BJ says he's worked too hard for the tag titles to be stripped from him because Dan Moff's career is over. He's sorry for Dan, but he has to move on. Uh, management called BJ and said he was getting the first shot at the, t- at the tag titles with a new partner of his choosing. He says when it comes to that new partner, BJ thinks he found the perfect guy, a guy with untapped toughness, a guy he nearly beat to death in Dayton, and he kept coming back against him. BJ says he's picked Jimmy Jacobs. Uh, Jimmy walks in hussing. BJ motions for him to knock it off. Gary Michael Capetta makes like a weird face reaction, facial expression. And so, yeah, that's uh, the launch of the BJ uh, Jimmy Jacobs tag team, which would later turn to the uh, BJ Jimmy Jacobs feud, which they'd get a lot of mileage out of that. Um, That brings us back from intermission to the first match of the second round of the Best of American Super Juniors Tournament semifinal match. And that would be Dragon Soldier B defeated James Gibson in 11 minutes, two seconds. When Spanky threw in the towel, a.k.a. his T-shirt that he had taken off, um, before the match, 
New Japan official Dave Marquez makes his way to the ring, and he talks to Bobby Cruz. Cruz announces that Marquez has ruled that due to a back injury, Gibson cannot wrestle in the second round. Uh, Dragon Soldier B celebrates, but a limping Gibson immediately appears, walking to the ring with Spanky at his side. Gibson steps through the ropes, and Soldier immediately attacks him. Gabe tells us that... um, Oh, CM Punk has requested promo time, and they immediately cut to that as the match starts, which I think tells you exactly how much they um, Gabe felt about this match in Dragon Soldier B. I think he just I think he just wanted to stick it to Dragon Soldier B one more time. Yeah, so we then get a uh, a CM Punk backstage promo. We have giant bars that say censored that cover CM Punk's stomach. Uh, Punk cuts a furious promo saying that the difference between him and Rave is that Punk has beaten legends, and he's done it on his own. Punk says he's going to cripple and maim Jimmy Rave, not just one or the other. Not because that, not because Rave attacked his girlfriend, not because Rave temporarily blinded him, but because he attacked his individuality and tried to steal his identity with a common household object. Punk welcomes Rave to the big time and says he has something in common now with people on death row because Rave now knows when he's going to die. It's the next show in Boston. Um, Matt, we, 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 we talked briefly already about the promo, but like, again, I felt like it was Punk trying to do another, um, promo on the level of the one he cut against Raven, where he talked about his dad being an alcoholic. But I did think you know, the intensity was great, but the subject matter here, trying to sell that this was the most, the worst thing that Rave has ever done to him. And the, you know, you've tried to take my individuality away with a common household object. It just came off as corny to me. I mean, do you agree? Yeah, I mean, he was trying to force emotion into something that didn't feel like it earned it necessarily. And, you know, whenever you have a line like, you have something in common with all those inmates on death row, you know when you're going to die. Like, you really need to earn something like that. And I don't think this feud – I mean, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm a fan of the rave and punk feud, but it didn't earn that yet. <laughs> yeah, um, but Matt, what did you think about the match itself? Um, I mean, it's like, um, I didn't think it was bad because I like James Gibson's selling, and, you know, and I just really enjoy watching that. You know, Dragon Soldier B didn't add much. You know, he did, he did his submission over the ropes, he did a superplex, um, but he mostly was, like, he felt like he was there to be someone that Gibson wouldn't quit against. Like, that was the, uh... That was where the attention was. At one point, um, Gibson uh, – Gabe says that Gibson's like an 80-year-old man because Gibson did a top rope leg drop and sells his back You know when he does it before covering. And I was like, you know, an 80-year-old man wouldn't even do a top rope leg drop. And then I'm like <laughs> – and then I'm like, well, you know what? Let's just wait four years and see what happens with Terry Funk because maybe um, – <laughs> But um, but at least up till now, I don't think an eighty year old man has ever done a top rope leg, a top rope leg drop. Um, but you know, like part of the story was that um, they keep saying that you know Paul Turner has to end the match. You know, it's 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 not responsible for him to let Gibson go because his his back is hurting too much. The funny part to me was that they were saying it while Gibson was on offense at one point, and I was like, if I was Gibson and the referee just stopped the match while I was winning, I'd be and, and award it to my opponent. I'd be pretty mad, I think. Um, but um, but most of the time he wasn't winning. Like he would get these hope spots, and then Dragon Soldier B would would beat on his back some more. And I did kind of like the move that Dragon Soldier B did at the end, where he did a hangman like backbreaker submission type thing. Um, when Spanky threw in the the shirt slash towel situation, I I don't know. I 
I didn't think Dragon Soldier B like ruined this match or anything. It just it was all about Gibson being in pain. Uh, I think the, the 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 frustrating part wasn't the execution of the match. It was just that they had to work it like that because Dragon Soldier B was going over and they uh, they couldn't just let Gibson get to the finals. That was the annoying part. But um, as far as like what it was, I thought it was fine. Honestly, I really didn't have a problem with it. So, Joe, uh, I'm interested in getting your thoughts on the match, especially because, one, it, it was edited, I, I presume, because we clearly didn't see all of this match. But, two, this felt like the match where the crowd – like, if the match was – the crowd was kind of politely disinterested in the first Dragon Soldier B match. This felt like the match where fans really turned on him. Um, just going – if you have any memories of this, like, did you get a – was this – was there some point on this night, maybe during this match, where you got the fear all of a sudden of – Oh God, he could win this whole thing. Like, was there was there some kind of point where you kind of sense that things shifted? And then, of course, how do you feel about this match? I think the sense in the crowd was as long as Danielson went to the finals, we would be okay because we would get three good to great Daniel Bryan Bryan Danielson matches. So, you know, if this guy won, that's really weird. But whatever, you know, we get to see what it is. Uh, This match was really hacked up. We saw Punk cut a two-minute promo, and then we saw four minutes of this match. So, Dragon Soldier B had wrestled on tape, I think, about 11 minutes between two matches at this point. So, a little below the three hours uh, earlier estimated by Mark <laughs> Nolte. Uh, if there was a match to, to edit up, it would have been this one, because, from what I remember, it was just kind of the same thing, just uh, for a bit longer, with Dragon Soldier B working over the back, and Gibson not giving up, and making brief comebacks. So, you know, it accomplished what it wanted to do, so no argument there. I like the bit with Spanky that plays into their upcoming breakup down the line. So, like, you know, four minutes, it served it served its purpose. Yeah, I thought what we saw going to, like, what you said, Matt, was perfectly fine because it was mostly Gibson selling and making one good-looking comeback. And it was funny, too, because the matches, you know, they're trying to sell the story of how Gibson's back is so screwed up. But because of their editing, you know, Gibson has a lot of the offense in the chunk we see because they they, they probably edited out mostly Dragon Soldier B in control. And... um yeah, back selling was good, and I felt like you could really. This is when you really started to see Gabe doing everything he could to try and minimize the damage of this tournament's booking being kind of foisted on him in some ways because he gives Gibson this big out where he has this back injury, and it's not even caused by Dragon Soldier B; it's caused by Roderick Strong, and he uses it and he has it so he doesn't really lose because Spanky throws in the in the towel, and like Joe says, that furthers the whole kind of simmering feud beneath the surface where spanky can say hey i'm doing it because i'm your friend and i care about you but after the match gibson's legit pissed and you know and gibson still gets the title shot on the very next show like so they have to keep him protected for that yeah so i I felt like this was gabe actually this is probably as good as gabe could have done with the idea that all of a sudden this got foisted on him that he had to have dragon soldier b win the whole tournament I, i felt like this was pretty good booking in that sense the action was just fine, but this was, if you listen to the crowd reactions, I feel like you can, the storm clouds were gathering at this point for Dragon Soldier B, for sure. Um, after them, so like I said, after the match, Spanky tries to help Gibson to his feet. He shoves Spanky away. Gibson's pissed, but Spanky says to him, like, I had to do it. I had to throw it in, you know. A few people in the crowd chant, fuck him up, Jamie, fuck him up, but they eventually just shake hands. So yeah, they're continuing the slow burn on that. 
And that brings us to uh, the final, the second semifinal match in the Best of American Super Juniors Tournament. Black Tiger defeated Brian Danielson via pinfall in 14 minutes, 22 seconds. I thought this was another pretty darn good. I wouldn't put this on the level of strong um, uh, Gibson. I certainly wouldn't put on the level of Spanky uh, uh, Danielson. But probably my third favorite match so far on the show and it, it was a match where, again, a lot of matches on the show, talented guys not really doing much of a story or injecting much of a feel of stakes or emotion into their matches, but just doing good work and stuff that looked good. Like, I felt like this match, it was just a lot of good back-and-forth action, a lot of hellacious kicking wars. And just, they broke out lots of cool stuff you don't often see from them. Like, um, Danielson, for some reason, went suplex nuts in this match. He did a cravat suplex, which I've seen him do before. But he doesn't do it all the time. He then did an inverted suplex. And then later he did the friggin' Tully Blanchard slingshot suplex, which I can't recall him doing that often, which I thought was really cool. He does it more. Um, he does it more like when he's the champion. I seem to remember him give, doing that move a little more, like in the, in the following year. Ah, uh, so this is probably an early example of something I've forgotten him doing. Well, that's, that's a good, that's a good catch. Um, uh, you know, I, I thought, you know, Black Tiger broke out the nice dive to the floor where he just kind of jumps from the, the, the ring, the turnbuckle to the floor and does kind of like the, uh, almost like the whoopee cushion West Coast pop kind of ass dive onto Danielson. Um, again, I felt like the Tiger suplex was kind of an anticlimactic finish in, in the, in the context of how they were working this match and going to what J- Joe said earlier about the fans were kind of hoping as long as Danielson was in it that they had hope. I think there, there's basically like you can hear some audible groans w- when Black Tiger wins. Like like the it, it, the realization you can literally hear some fans realize like fuck we know what's happening now. Um, Joe, what did you think about this match? And was that was that the moment when when, when Danielson loses where you were like where you could just hear probably? I mean I know for a fact you can hear in that crowd. Just a, a big deflation. Yeah, I remember it's just like they let the air out of 500 balloons at once. It was just like we were waiting for Krusty to show up at Camp Krusty, and uh, <laughs> we found out he wasn't coming. But <laughs> as for the match itself, I like this a lot more than Tiger's first match. They had more time. They had an actual finishing stretch. And Danielson was clearly the crowd favorite, so it was a bit more heated. And um, yeah, Black Tiger tried that. I don't know if he was going for a Rana or what on that dive, but he just bowled into Danielson on that. And I like Danielson. He used a sit-down splash at one point as a counter. But yeah, Tiger wins and everyone's just like, oh no. <laughs> that was kind of the, the feel in the building. Uh, Matt, what what did you think about this? I mean, it, it's another Brian, two Brian Danielson matches on one show I'll never complain about. Yeah, uh, these guys did a really good job. I, I don't think it, everything completely like clicked in terms of like turning into something that was more than the sum of its parts for me you know what i mean but it was yeah. it was still very well done i love watching danielson i really did enjoy romero in this role i've en- i enjoyed him more here than in other matches i'd seen him in so far in roh up until this point um i i enjoyed there was a moment where danielson was going after black tiger's mask and I tried to kind of like put in my own storyline where Danielson knew it was Romero, but he just wanted to prove it so he could see that it was a member of the Rottweilers and just go go off on him. <laughs> like, I don't know if that's what he was going for, but it would make sense, right? Um, mm-hmm. the, there was um, – he – you know, in, in a lot of Danielson matches, there's there's something new. Like, there was a move here where he did like this figure four head scissors – 
and then pushed up with his hands simultaneously. And that's like another uh, move that I don't remember him doing. Like you watch enough Danielson and you're going to see so many things that he only does maybe once or twice in ROH because he's always trying things. Um, you know, and that's kind of what's what's fun about him. Um, I also really like the near fall where um, Black Tiger escaped the, the dragon suplex and Dan- and kicked Danielson in the head. And then he, he kept going for more kicks and they have this kick and slap fight in the center of the ring. And then Danielson hits the roaring elbow and falls on top for two. Like, uh, you know, by at this point, in this point in the match, every time Danielson got a near fall, um, they were, the crowd would really pop big because they really wanted him to win. And like you said, it was very audible, the deflation when Black Tiger won. Um, but Gabe did a good job of putting Black Tiger over. Like he he didn't well, he wanted to make sure that he gave him his due. He actually said at the end, like this doesn't even consider this isn't even considered an upset. You know, he's Black Tiger is that good. So I I appreciated that. Although um, Romero didn't stick with the Black Tiger gimmick in ROH for that long. I think he only has a couple of matches be after this with that gimmick. Yeah, and honestly, I think Romero in ROH is better served as Romero because his personality was trying to come out a little bit more, and I think it probably would have been harder for him to show that as Black Tiger, where you're just wearing the mask, and I don't think the value you get from the mask in America is as much as is worth that trade, but um, that brings us to a couple non-tournament matches now for the show. We get a Ring of Honor Tag Team Title Number 1 Contendership Scramble match. Generation Next of Jack Evans and Roderick Strong defeated Asriel and Dixie, Lacey's Angels of Deranged and Izzy, and the Ring Crew Express of Dunn and Marcos in 9 minutes, 53 seconds, when Strong made Dixie submit to the Stronghold. Um, Joe, I'm going to get you to give the first opinions of this match, but first I just want to say, so after all these shows where Dixie and Asriel didn't come out to music, they finally come out to music, and it's like a bad cover of My Sharona. (laughs) What a a letdown. (laughs) <laughs> all that what are they gonna do when they finally get to have their music back when they finally feel they've earned it it's my sharona uh okay uh joe <laughs> what'd you think about the match though um i like this i mean you guys are seeing these on the regular this was yeah. kind of a, a drop in for me maybe you're just sick to death of these but i i like this on the car like i said like the like the no DQ match, this is a lot different from everything else on the card. I really liked Roddy and Jack as additions. Roddy just being a wrecking ball. I thought Jack fit in well, bumping like a madman. You know, a, a bunch of moves, but it seemed the moves were hit fairly crispy, uh, crisply and with a higher batting average than normal. Those are real brutal-looking strikes and suplexes. And uh, on commentary, I think Gabe made a note of Dixie's new gear, but he was just like wearing like drag hefty bags for pants it looked like <laughs> so i don't really see that and gabe called Lacey the smartest businesswoman in wrestling and nolte chimed in that's like being the toughest man in france so uh bad digs at both women and france on uh on a nolte there here he here 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 goes nolte again <laughs> yep here he goes again but uh i mean i don't know where this ranks as a scramble i enjoyed it uh and it broke up the card nicely yeah, um, Matt and I have seen a lot of scrambles. I, I thought this was enjoyable. Um, I think all the scrambles, most of them, I would say 90% of them, when you watch all of them, kind of fade together. And I would say this fades into them. And it, only if they're really a lot better than usual or a lot worse than usual do I really call them out. I think this is just a, a fun scramble. It's, it, there's some sloppiness, like um, 
Izzy does a big moonsault drop kick that whiffs, and that's a spot he usually does. And, you know, there's some sloppiness, but there's also some really cool spots like, uh, Jack Evans does like a shining wizard kind of step up into a reverse Rana on Izzy, which I thought was a real cool way to do that move. Uh, Dixie puts Izzy in a camel clutch, and then Azrael comes off the top rope with a double flying foot stomp onto Izzy's head while he's in the camel clutch, which was really cool. Um, I guess I should also mention that this match was scheduled to be Jack Evans wrestling as himself because I guess they didn't want to telegraph that Strong would be eliminated in the first round. But then Strong comes out at the, st- at the entrance to team with him and pull double duty and actually gets the win here. Um, Allison Danger, like you mentioned, was at ringside with a pen and a notebook, I guess doing scouting for the uh, her whatever she's supposed to be doing. And uh, Lacey's Angels debut as Lacey's Angels in the sense of the gimmick was was invented on the last show, but basically the gimmick just involves everyone wearing, like, dress shirts while they wrestle and stand up. Lacey's dress but, shirts. This should have been the name of the uh, <laughs> the, the team. <laughs> um, Matt, what would you think? I, I thought this was a decent, you know, scramble, but but my highlight was Gabe calling a Jack, a Jack Evans dive a space-flying tiger driver. <laughs> yeah, that was a good one. I, it was funny because we just talked about that move last on the last show. But yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I pretty much agree with you. Like seeing so many of these makes your standards higher. So this match, I thought, I think I actually thought could have been better, but I still thought it, you know, was fun. Had you know, had some some fast paced, exciting moves. Um, one thing I noticed is that Jack Evans kept landing on poor Dixie's legs. Um, he did an ode to the Bulldogs, and he landed on Dixie's legs. And then later on, uh, Roderick Strong like scooped him up into one of those standing flip dives, and he again landed on Dixie's legs. And I was just like, Dixie's poor legs. It just sounds like the name of a of an album or something. Um, but <laughs> um, no, but yeah, like like you mentioned, most of the uh, the the cool moves. Um, at one point, Izzy and Deranged do like a moonsault drop kick into a code red, which I, which I thought was cool. Um, he does, um, yeah. I mean, I'm looking through my notes. I, I, a lot of what what I was going to say was a lot of what you were going to say. It was not as smooth as some scrambles, but still was very fast paced and entertaining. And I definitely agree that it was refreshing um, on this particular card. So I appreciated it being there. And that brings us to our next match, another non-tournament match. This was for the vacant Ring of Honor Tag Team titles because, of course, Dan Moff got horrifically injured in a car accident. His career's over. You can hear more about that on the previous episode. Spoiler, he did not actually get into a car accident. Um, BJ Whitmer and Jimmy Jacobs defeat Jay Lethal and Samoa Joe in 20 minutes, 33 seconds, when Whitmer pinned Lethal after a risk clutch exploder off the top rope although i well i guess he was standing on the second turnbuckle but um lethal was standing on the top so i don't know if you would call that a second or a top but either way they win the titles um i thought this was a good match um not great again probably in like the three and a quarter three and a half star range nothing for the first two thirds it was always decent but i thought it was missing something this was yet another match on the show and maybe no match more on the show where i really felt it was kind of missing some kind of extra emotion or, or, or story to it. Um, they did a bunch, but in the, in the last third of this match, it was one of those things where they just worked so hard and did enough cool things that it kind of just was like, Oh, you got me match. I'm, I'm into this. You know, you through sheer effort, I feel like a lot of matches on this show don't really have the intangibles, but they kind of just through sheer effort and good professional work 
entertain you anyway. And there was stuff in like in the last third of this match where BJ and Jimmy do the first time they ever do the doomsday device Rana where BJ puts the guy on his shoulders and then Jimmy does the Rana off the top rope. I thought that was awesome. It, it, it kind of makes me wish much like when Ode to the Bulldog first started happening that like they didn't – they should have used that as the finish for this match rather than just toss it off for a random near fall. Uh, Joe takes an exploder from BJ Whitmer and maybe it's just because of his weight, but it looks like – like a really serious, like it looks like a simultaneous, like a safe bump and also scary at the same time. Uh, at one point, Jimmy Jacobs does a senton and Joe catches him mid senton and just tosses him over the top rope like a sack of garbage. And I thought that was just like a really cool spot. You've heard, um, you've heard of being interrupted mid sentence, but being interrupted mid senton, that's a new one. <laughs> but I, I just felt like, um, yeah, it was good, but not great. But I also thought it was kind of weird because Jimmy Jacobs here is still playing very comedy, even which is part of his character up to this point. But this is a big, you know, tag title match. He's really like doing kind of getting like no sold by Samoa Joe. Like at the start of the match, when he even he gets a handshake from Joe, he sells that like his hand is hurt from Joe, you know, shaking it. Um, and, and, and stuff like when Jimmy Jacobs plays face and peril in this match, which is usually a, a role he's really great at, I feel like the crowd's kind of dead for it because, you know, like Joe and Lethal aren't heels. Like no one's really a heel in this match. So it's kind of like you're not feeling sympathy because you kind of like also want to see Lethal and, and Joe do well too. But again, there was enough cool spots in the final third and the match was never boring. So good match, not great. And we, uh, have new tag team champs. Um, Matt, what did you think? I pretty much agree with you about the quality. Um, some of the details I have some disagreements with. Like, I really like Jacobs in this match. I thought he did a really good job. I thought his his execution was really good. I thought he was entertaining. I also liked Lethal a lot here. It was actually Whitmer that I thought had kind of an an off night with some of the uh, some of his timing wasn't perfect. Uh, I still thought that as a team, though, um, Jacobs and Whitmer were a lot more entertaining than Moff and Whitmer were almost in most regular tag team matches. Um, Speaking of Moff, there were a couple of lines here that I want to note. First of all, at one point, Gabe, at the beginning, makes sure to note, he says, Dan Moff will be okay after his car accident, but his wrestling career is over. So I thought, oh, cool, he should just come back and do commentary and like make fun appearances <laughs> like Magnum TA did. Just just bring him on back there. I think I think he'd he'd Time for a new member of the Rottweilers. Yeah, just just show up. You know why not? <laughs> just just have him come and say hello when he feels better. Um, wasn't to be though. Um, there was also another line with Moff where uh, Cave just he goes he goes. Um, I would like to thank Dan Moff for his contributions to Dan Moff. Um, he quickly <laughs> he qu- he quickly corrects himself, but I wanted to bask in that moment because that was very funny. Because I, I I mean I've said this to you before, but I don't think there's a single person on earth that's contributed more to Dan Moff than Dan Moff. <laughs> I think Did he's you also. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, did you also notice, I thought this was interesting, when, when he also thanked Dan Moff for everything he's done for Dan Moff, he all, Gabe also called uh, Moff an absolute class individual. And given the context of what we know, <laughs> like, I felt like that's like, I felt like that must be, have been a real tightrope for Gabe to walk because it seems like he didn't want to bury you know, Moff, but at the same time, you know one of your top wrestlers definitely wants to bury Dan Moff. So it's kind of weird to be like, 
Like he went out of his way to be like, he's an absolute class individual. We thank him for everything he did. You know, he was a big part of the start. He, you know, he was part of the opening segment of the first show. But yet, if you know the story behind it, it's, it's, it's a real weird to hear. Well, it was, yeah. I mean, also, you know, we don't know for sure what the real situation was. Maybe Gabe does. I don't know. But yeah. I'm not even saying Moff did anything or didn't do anything, but yeah. just based on the fact of knowing that, like, one of your, like, I wonder what Homicide would feel if he knew Gabe was, like, calling Dan Moff an absolute class individual. Maybe, maybe those were the terms. Maybe Homicide was like, you can't bring him back, but you could at least, you could one time call him a class individual. That's, <laughs> that's the nicest thing you're allowed to say about him. Um, there was another part where, um, so, like, Le- Jacobs and Lethal were doing some fun, like, arm drag trading. And, like, there was a long spinning head scissors by Jacobs. And Nolte goes, if Brian Danielson calls it the airplane spin from hell, that's the head scissors from hell. And I was just like, Danielson doesn't call it the airplane spin from hell. I had never heard him say that. Um, <laughs> just just making stuff up. Um, another, another funny commentary line was um, Gabe said that the ROH officials ruled out the embassy as culprits in the Jay Lethal Trios tournament attack because they have an alibi. They were all in Prince Nana's limo eating shrimp cocktail. And, and I was just like, sitting in a limo eating a lot of shrimp cocktail before you go out and do something very physical. I don't know. That doesn't seem, doesn't seem like a good idea. Like, yeah, let's load up on shrimp cocktail, then go have a fight. I, I, I don't know. Um, but um, but hey, it's a it's a rock solid alibi. So at least we have that going for us. Um, but um, with all that comedy out of the way, um, I um, I you know there was you know I guess like I said I thought that I, I really enjoyed uh, Jacobs and Lethal when they worked together. I enjoyed the final sequence. Whitmer just seemed off. Like there was a moment where uh, Jacobs like went to hot tag him in, and Whitmer like almost tripped over him. And, and Gabe, yeah. Gabe tried to cover for him. Like I'm not saying that was necessarily Whitmer's fault, but there were just there was just I don't know there was just something that seemed off about him. He seemed hesitant a few times. By the end, he uh, he got better, but there wasn't a ton of a ring time for Whitmer compared to normal. Like Jacobs did a lot of the work in the match, um, but like you said, the the, the Doomsday Rana and the, and Joe catching uh, Jacobs or lethal excuse me catching Jacobs on the senton were probably the two most impressive parts of the match and I thought those were both really really cool I genuinely don't understand why if Whitmer and Jacobs were going to win why they didn't use the top rope rana as the finish I mean the yeah. uh, the doomsday rana that does that doesn't make any sense to me I still don't understand it but um hey whatever um I, I I pretty much am on the same page as you as far as overall quality though. This was it was a good match. Uh probably could have been better, but it was pretty good. Joe, what did you think? Yeah, I like this a lot as well. I I like the dynamic of the match with the two stars and kind of the two junior partners. And uh, I think Jacobs is a massive upgrade over Moff in terms of a tag team setting, at least with BJ Whitmer. He made a pretty ideal face in peril. He took a lot of cool op- offense like uh, the huge double flapjack. A couple of rough spots, as stated, BJ almost falling over, coming into the ring, but a lot of cool moments as well. And I do wish kind of, it felt like Jacobs didn't do anything to help them win because Samoa Joe just kind of dove on him at the end and that <laughs> Joe was out of the match and then BJ <laughs> hit the top rope exploder for the win. I wish they had one on the the Doomsday Rana because it would have felt like like Jacobs contributed to the win. And maybe that maybe that's a point going forward, I don't know. 
But I also know they talked about Jacobs. Like, he's driven 12 hours to get to shows before. He did it tonight. I was like, I hope they get him a plane ticket from now on that he's a uh, <laughs> one of the tag team champions of the company. Especially for this show with the rain and all that, and oh, the weather, geez. apparently. You know, if that's true. Yeah, because like, that's a great point, Joe. That Gabe does say that for this match, Jimmy Jacobs drove 12 hours to get work this show. So that's pretty nuts. Um, well, the last thing I, I forgot to mention I should bring up is uh, – there's only one tag title belt because apparently at this point Dan Moff hadn't returned the other tag title belt, so there's only one belt for to crown the new tag team champs. I'm sure they could just, I'm sure they could just ask him for it. He's a class act. Exactly, you know, class individuals. You know, uh, maybe he got dented in the car accident. I don't know, but um, that brings us to the semifinal for this show, the Best of American Super Juniors Tournament Final. Dragon Soldier B defeated Black Tiger in 12 minutes 11 seconds. So. Before we talk about the match, I think now is when we can tell the whole story of the booking of this tournament. So I got a bunch of quotes here. Let's start off with the Wrestling Observer. Dave Meltzer wrote, it was a, uh, talking about the show overall, he wrote, it was a strong show overall, but the tournament final was the worst received match of the show as everyone both wanted and expected Brian Danielson versus James Gibson, and both were eliminated in the semis. The actual plan was for Gibson versus the new Black Tiger, Rocky Romero, and with one or the other going over. During the last week, New Japan, which had booking power over the tournament, must have signed Kendo Kashin and then changed their minds to put him over. There was a fight over it with the feeling that Kashin, who does a lazy comedy style most of the time, wouldn't get over in Ring of Honor. Plus, the fans would be mad at anyone other than Gibson or Danielson winning, most likely. In the end, Simon Anoki wouldn't budge. Um... Pro Wrestling Torch actually got a quote from Gabe after the show, and they write, Sapolsky posted at the, oh, they didn't get it directly, they got it from the Ring of Honor message board, which, thank God they did, because that message board is, you cannot access it anymore. Anyway, the Torch wrote, Sapolsky posted at the Ring of Honor website that he made a mistake in handing over booking control of the best of the Super Juniors tourney in Asbury Park to outsiders. He wrote, quote, I made a mistake with the show by handing over the book on the winners and losers, and I have learned from my mistake. I do apologize to the Ring of Honor faithful for that. However, I do strongly believe that you will all love this DVD when it comes out. Danielson versus Spanky alone makes it worthwhile, but there's lots of other great stuff on the show as, as well. Um, going back to the Observer on a live report. Dragon Soldier B beat Tiger in a match that was terrible, and the crowd had already decided not to like it before it got terrible. The bout went 12 minutes, 11 seconds, with fans chanting, don't come back at Soldier. Gibson, James Gibson ran out, ran out to apologize to the fans for the bullshit you just saw. Gibson said he wanted Ring of Honor versus New Japan Juniors feud, challenging, challenging Jushin Liger, Koji Kanemoto, Gato Jado, and others to face people like him, Samoa Joe, AJ Styles, Brian Danielson, and Homicide. This was just something that Gibson asked to do on the spur of the moment and means nothing going forwards as there are no plans for a Ring of Honor versus New Japan Juniors program. In fact, I, I did some more research into this. So first off, let's just say, before we go into our thoughts on the match, just to explain the booking, you know the result. I just gave it out. Fans on the entire match. They hated the result. Don't come back, chance. Apparently, after the match, this did not make tape. James, James Gibson runs out and does what the Observer says. He gives this promo, basically bearing the booking, saying, you know, apologize, whatever. So 
listening to uh, Jimmy Rave on an honorable mention, he actually talks about this night, and he says that Jamie Noble was so pissed about Dragon Soldier V's performances that he had to be held back from running to the ring during this match. That like 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 he actually <laughs> wanted to interfere during the match as a shoot. Apparently, I don't know what his plan was, but 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 apparently him running out afterwards. I that sounds like it was just like the least they could get him to settle for. Maybe I don't know. Um, he he would he would pretend he was pretend he was in Dragon Soldier B's corner and throw in the towel for him. <laughs> but um. So Gibbs apparently Ring of Honor was happy Gibson did this because so, they wrote on a, on a Ring of Honor website newswire afterwards. Gibson proved his heart and soul belonged to Ring of Honor with his impromptu speech last Saturday after Dragon Soldier B won the Best of American Super Juniors tournament. Gibson is emerging as a leader in the Ring of Honor locker room. So going through all of this, I guess we should talk about the booking. Uh, I want to make say one thing first before I get your guys' thoughts to kind of end because I think. This booking is even worse when you think about it. It's like the Japanese or Russian, no, Russian nesting doll, a bad booking. Because you think about it this way. Level one is this was a tournament that was promised as being eight Americans. And they did, and they, and they gave you a person that wasn't American. So that's level one. Level two is it's a non-American that the fans don't like. Level three is that guy goes on to win the entire tournament in a series of matches that aren't particularly horrible but aren't particularly good. Now, level four is the whole conceit of the tournament is the guy that wins it is supposed to earn a shot into the best of the Super Juniors tournament in Japan. Folks, I can tell you, Kendo Kashin, Dragon Soldier B, whatever you want to call him, does not wrestle in the best of the Super Juniors tournament this year. In fact... He, you would say, oh, well, Trevor, maybe he got injured. No, he wrestles on that tour in heavyweight non-tournament matches. In fact, he wrestles in New Japan as a heavyweight. He wrestles in the G1 Climax that year. So, okay, you'll say, all right, Trevor, that all sounds horrible. But at least it was still, even if he didn't use it, no one else in this tournament got a spot. You know what? Black Tiger 4, Rocky Romero, made it to the best of the Super Junior. So the guy that loses in this match... For this prize, gets the prize anyway. The guy that wins this match and gets the prize doesn't get the prize. He just, whatever, don't want it. And, again, this the booking of this show, I mean, it, this show it gets shit on a lot. And I would argue kind of unfairly in some ways because the booking of, of, of this tournament kind of overshadows everything else. Um, Joe, like, how disappointed was the crowd, like, when this happened, like, do you, I mean, do you have any memories about this? Yeah. Crowd was having none of the, I don't care. <laughs> they could have had like a spanky Brian Danielson level match and crowd was not having any of it, but the way they structured this match was incredible because you had to know the fans would not be happy with this, but then they go into a match that has a stupid ref bump. And also this really bizarre comedy spot where dragon soldier P is doing all these rolling cradles and gets dizzy and tries to roll up the ref. And the <laughs> the announcers are just dumping on them the whole time. They're like, ah, the fans are right. And I think Nolte said Danny Hodge would not be impressed. But, you know, Kendo Kashin was a decorated amateur wrestler and he won a shoot fight. Maybe Danny Hodge would be impressed. We don't know. And, um, you know, at least we got to see the pretty new Japan mat for this match. They brought it out. But no, the this was just, yeah. I mean, this is, this is as fascinating a, a match as you'll see in Ring of Honor just because of how everything just went wrong with this. And then, you know, James Gibson runs out afterwards to cut a, a promo and 
you know, he was going to be Dragon Soldier C later on, the C standing for <laughs> Confederacy. Oh. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, just, just a, a memorable mess in the, in the annals of Ring of Honor. Um, Matt, your thoughts on the booking on the match? I guess one thing I just want to say, too, is it's funny where in recent years people used to uh, – you would see people say, oh, New Japan is really taking advantage of Ring of Honor. New Japan's ruining Ring of Honor about, like, the modern New Japan-Ring of Honor relationship. And I always thought, like, New Japan, you know, yes, sometimes their talent looked better than Ring of Honor talent stuff. But Ring of Honor from the modern New Japan relationship gained a lot. They had their best ever attendances. They got access to great talent and the Bullet Club, which was a huge drawing card for them. They got to run a co-promoted sellout show in Madison Square Garden. Like, I always want to say to those people, if you want to look at what – if you want to see what it looks like when New Japan fucks over Ring of Honor – Watch this show because this is what it looks like. This is is what it and and also this booking. No one gained anything from this. Like here's the thing: New Japan didn't gain anything from this. What did they get? They got a win in a show where he it ends with the crowd saying, "Don't come back at a guy." In a series of shitty of, of not great matches, they don't even use the the, the stip that this whole tournament was built around. It, it just no one won from this. No, no one like nobody. Not Dragon Soldier B. Not New Japan. Not Ring of Honor. Like nobody benefited from this. I wonder if it was all just so they can get like pictures to put in magazines of him yeah. beating, you know, Matt Seidel, who I don't even know if Japanese fans knew who he was at that time, of beating James Gibson slash Jamie Noble, of beating Black Tiger, and just having his hand raised, like. I wonder if that was it. I also thought it was funny that they put out the whole New Japan like canvas for this, and it just feels like this wasn't worth it. <laughs> this wasn't worth changing the canvas for. Um, it's funny because you mentioned like one of the things that um, you know made this bad was that it was supposed to be the best of American Super Juniors, and you know they have a guy who wasn't American. I think that if it was somebody that people really liked and somebody who put out a good performances. I don't think that would have been that big of an issue, you know. Like if it was, you know, if it was like let's just like randomly say like Kenta, you know, for for instance. I know he wasn't in New Japan, but like if he was in the tournament and won it, I don't think anyone would be like, "What? It's supposed to be American," you know. Like I don't, I don't think that would be a thing. Um, I think it's just that Dragon Soldier B was, you know, kind of sucked and didn't really have matches. Like he just had like three short nothing matches. in fact, when Gabe complains about how it's supposed to be the best of American Super Juniors, Nolte says, I'm not sure the nation of Japan wants to claim this guy either, which I know was another pretty good line from Nolte. He's, he's, he's going out with some <laughs> solid lines here, I got to say. Um, but you know, I think it was hard for me to pay too much attention of, to the match because it was much more focused for me on the announcers just burying this the entire time. Like They, they are just so resentful that any of this happened, and of course the crowd booing. Like yeah, they do the uh, the wacky uh, roll up thing where 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 uh, Dragon Soldier B is dizzy, and um, you know um, they do this these like tombstone reversals with Black Tiger eventually on the apron, and then does like a very slow West Coast pop for two, um, and then the tombstone gets two, and then the crowd is just booing like crazy, um, and but. Actually, when Dragon Soldier B does his flipping armbar thing off the ropes and win- gets the win, Gabe actually puts the move over. 
Gabe's like, finally, yeah. he does an impressive move. Um, and it was, it was a pretty good move, but, but the, the commentary provided all the entertainment in that match. Like, uh, for me, anyway. There was, there was really no, no value to be had in the match itself. Um, that said, again, I mentioned this earlier, it just, it doesn't have the visceral sting for me that it did, at, that it would have at the time. You know, the idea that, like, oh man, this booking is terrible. It's like, you know, now it's just kind of amusing. You know, at the time, again, it was probably really, really, really frustrating. But as it is now, it's just like, wow, this booking was was silly. <laughs> That's kind of funny, you know? Yeah. Um, I would say, like, it's funny. I think the secret, the dirty little secret to this tournament is I wouldn't, like, the the report Dave got in the Observer says this match was terrible. Maybe this match was clearly edited, so maybe it was terrible live. I don't think it was terrible. Again, I think it was just a very average match where dragon soldier b was giving very little effort there's nothing kind of much to it so, there was just nothing much to yeah, it that's all yeah none of his matches are bad they're just at least in the edited forms they're just it's a guy who's clearly doesn't is, is not giving a ton of effort kind of letting other guys do stuff around him he's doing some cheating and then they go to finishes and it's the booking is what's sinking everything and um but yeah, yeah, just the, yeah. The story of this match is how much the crowd is shitting on it the whole way. They're just you. It's rare you will ever see in Ring of Honor, maybe ever, at least in the Sapolsky era, the fans shit on something this bad. I mean, I guess you could say stuff like the ICP stuff, you know, or Conan when they made early appearances, but those were all edited off the the, the shows they appeared on. They ended up coming out later on a special uncensored like Odds and Ends DVD. This is like on a main show, something that they couldn't edit away, even though they completely edited off all the like post and pre-match and the entrances for this. But, you know, it's rare you see like a major thing like this get this much shit from the crowd. Just completely hating it and um it's funny because like even gabe shitting on it, like in the earlier matches he was t- on commentary he was like oh dragon soldier b he's cheating that's how he's kind of shitting on him like in a kayfabe way in this match he outright says like ring of honor fans expect a, a top-notch effort and dragon soldier b isn't putting in a good effort like he, he basically calls him lazy <laughs> and i mean i can't argue with that either and um it, it's funny um Matt, I guess the thing I want to ask you, and Joe, you can chime in if you have any thoughts too, is do you think this is the reason we got way more – like shortly after this, we start seeing um, Ring of Honor work with Noah and with Dragon, uh, Dragon Gate, and those would be per- very fruitful partnerships that would last for a long time. Do you feel like that was kind of a result? I mean, I have no insider knowledge. I wonder if that was a result of this. Like, In other words, if this term had – been a success would have ring of honor gone deeper into a new japan relationship would have that been open for even like yeah i think it's kind of two different questions because like i do think they probably stopped working with new japan because this didn't go well but that doesn't automatically mean they they would have gone to Noah. i think i think what it did do probably was it made sure that when they were working with noah and dragon gate they were they were like probably doing their due diligence to make sure okay we're going to get the good stuff when we work with them because they did, you know, they, they got match of the year quality matches from, you know, lots of guys from both of those promotions over the next couple of years. And, um, that definitely wasn't the case with their previous, um, forays into working with Japanese companies. Um, so I think that maybe it, it had a big influence on the, the quality control 
aspect of you know it's like we're gonna if we're we're gonna get no, we're gonna get Noah stars we're gonna get Kenta Kobashi we're gonna get Kenta and Kenta's gonna work a main event level match for us and he's gonna you know really care and as opposed to or, and you know when we get these Dragon Gate I mean these Dragon Gate guys they're gonna come in and they're gonna you know go absolutely balls out as opposed to taking the taking the weekend off for their American tour like I think you know from here on out. Pretty much all the Japanese guys you see are coming in. They're taking it really, really seriously. And obviously that was not the case with Dragon Soldier B. And it wasn't really the case with um, the All Japan guys that had come for the final battle in 2003 either. Yeah, so kind of the end of that kind of era of Japanese or foreign talent coming in where, yeah, the expectations are going to start changing very quickly. But... Uh, so yeah, that was that. Just the story. It's definitely. I think. I don't say everyone should have to watch this, but if you're watching the show, I wouldn't skip this because it's such a weird little piece of history. And again, it is edited down, so it's not even really a painful watch. And even just to see them chant "Don't come back" right after he wins, like it's it, it's a, it's an interesting curiosity, I would say. But that brings us finally to the main event: the Ring of Honor World Title Match. Austin Aries successfully defended the title by defeating Homicide via pinfall in 25 minutes, 38 seconds after he hits three consecutive brain busters and a 450 splash. Uh, Joe, I believe Gabe said on commentary that this match was starting at quarter after midnight. And this was a match where credit to you and your fellow audience members, the crowd, I would say by the end of this match was as loud as for, for the key spots as they were for anything else on the show, including the really hot opener. Um, what do you think about the match, especially watching it back after all that time? Because, you know, you would say this match is in a pretty horrible spot starting this late on a show this long following a match that was hated that much. So what did you think? Yeah, I think the, I think the fans kind of realized like, all right, we just saw a really bad tournament final, you know, but we we like both these guys. They're a tough spot. Let's just try to make something of the night and and go nuts for this match. And it was a very good match, like you say. It was twelve fifteen and went like a long time. So it probably got done around twelve forty in the morning. And then yeah, you know, they, they wrestled back and forth for a bit. It was good. There was this crazy spot where Homicide just launched Aries outside the ring. He like just bonked on the table. And they go back and forth. And and there's a spot where Aries hits a burning hammer and Homicide kicks out at one and just gets enraged and, and hulked up. And I guess the idea is that that's Dan Moff's move and homicide. Yeah. He hates Dan Moff. Oh, I, to- I totally missed that. That's thank you. But, but in storyline, Dan Moff was in a car crash, so it doesn't really make a, a ton of sense. Why Aries would, would do this move and why homicide could just no sell it. That, that was a bit silly for me, but at that point, the match really kicked up, uh, there's another brutal table bump outside where Homicide just dives on Aries and table doesn't break and just splats him. Julius Smokes breaks up a pin and Danielson comes out. We get Danielson versus Smokes in a six-star confrontation. And um, there's a, a great spot. Homicide hits a lariat and Aries just, just pinballs for it. I think you posted a uh, a clip of that on Twitter. Yeah. That was a great, great near fall. And they fight back and forth. And, um, yep, like I said, Aries hits three brain busters and 450. And very good, and the last six or seven minutes were just excellent. So, a very good, like two very good matches to kind of bookend the show. I think they were the high points of the card overall. Matt, do you agree? Yeah, I thought this could have been a really spectacular fifteen-minute match, 
as it was, I thought it was a very good 25-minute match. Um, I thought the last, you know, like you said, like the last six or seven minutes where they get into the near falls were just fantastic. Like, they, they, they just they just went balls out, and they were – I've used that phrase a lot more tonight than I have, like, in the past 10 years. But I'm going to say it a lot now. Balls out. Um they 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 um they really um no they really did and um i just thought there was there was uh maybe not enough in the first two thirds of the match to justify the length i think they wanted it to be epic and i think they probably would have been better off just making it a little bit less epic um i think part of that i mean maybe you know maybe they needed that time to get the crowd you know awake after everything they had just been through i don't know but I just feel like the match would have been a little better if it was shorter. But um, but there was you know some cool stuff early. Um, at one point when um, when Homicide backdropped Ares over the top and he landed on the table, you know Homicide seemed like really pissed off. And I think what happened was Homicide Homicide probably thought the table broke too early, and then he went outside and realized that it hadn't. So I think that that was probably what happened. But you know, like you said, that there were some there were some cool moves. You know, a lot of it was um, Ares having the advantage in the ring, and then Homicide taking over when they go outside. Um, you know, there's a lot of that stuff. Um, at one point, Ares had Homicide up in this torture rack, and like he dropped down into a backbreaker. It almost reminded me of an like that move by Abyss. You know what I'm talking about? Where he oh, drops yeah, down. Like, yeah. That 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 was the um, I don't know who else does that move, but that's who I thought of first when I saw it. Um, the burning hammer that Ares did, you know, thank you for pointing that out, Joe. That it was supposed to be a Dan Moff reference because I didn't get that at all. But also, it wasn't really much of a burning hammer. Um, it it was like almost it felt more like an upside down Death Valley driver to me. You know, he didn't really like lift him up and drop him the way you do in a burning hammer. But you know, Gabe did call it out. Um, but yeah, yeah, like you said, when um, when Homicide popped up and then Gabe said he has that kill mode in his eyes, although I'll be honest, his eyes look kind of the same to me. Um, <laughs> but um, but but no, but I got the point. Like you know, Homicide was all fired up. He hulked up basically. You know, he did the uh, the tope onto the table. The table didn't break. You know, they're doing the they, that. That's when they really start doing the dueling chants. I really like Danielson's appearance, though. Like he was on fire. Like he was just so aggressively attacking Smokes and like just emoting with his face. Uh, I, I thought, like, I really actually thought that added to the match a lot. Because then after that, they really stepped it up. You know, they top rope. Um, you know, Aries went back up. Homicide got the top rope Ace Crusher. Then they did, you know, the Lariat that you were talking about, and the crowd definitely bought that near fall. Um, you know, then Homicide rolled after the 450, went for another cop killer. Ares escapes and then does the three brain busters. I, I really, really, up, I think probably the moment, like you said, was when they did the, um, when they, when um, Homicide kicked out at one of from the uh, quote burning hammer, the match really came alive for me and it became a really excellent match. Um, before that, I thought it was range from good to just okay there were moments that were kind of slow for me but overall i thought it was very good and a uh, and a good way to end the show i i like this match more than you i would say it was my second favorite match of the show other than the opener I, but i would also say again right below great like i would put very slightly above strong and gibson another like three and three quarter star match I would say this is yet another match on this show, and Aries has a lot of these matches at this point for me, where 
it's kind of missing something. Like it doesn't have the story. It doesn't have like a great, like really like interesting psychology. It doesn't really even have amazing emotion, but he just worked so hard that I just get, I end up enjoying it despite it lacking those things. I felt like, like you guys said that they really did try and make this match, um, uh, uh, like, uh, like they, they wrestled this like it was a major, major main event for better and for worse, which I think Matt, you were kind of going to, because for example, you would think after a show this long with the crowd being kind of burnt out and pissed off, you wouldn't start a mat. You, you would go, let's just hit them with 15 minutes of really quick stuff and, 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 you know, all killer, no filler. Instead, they wrestle this like they have all the time in the world and they start out with like, they do a 25 minute match that starts out with like five minutes of very basic mat work. But at the same time, I enjoyed the mat work, but I can see, like, I am shocked the crowd got into this match as much as they did by the end because they wrestled like the opening part of this match very slow and deliberately. And I could have just as easily seen this crowd being like, we're already tired. Fuck you guys. This is boring. We're just checking out, but they didn't. They, uh, when the match picked up, they were right there with it. Um, they did a bunch of, you know, things that you don't usually see from them. You know, like, like you mentioned, Matt, the kind of abyss style backbreaker from Aries. Uh, Aries is in a tree of woe and he kind of sits up out of it and hits a, a stunner out of that position. Um, Homicide does like the Randy Orton and leg drape DDT, but he uses the top rope instead of the middle rope. Um, obviously the crazy burning hammer spot, the big, two big table spots with a tope on Conhilo on the table, the ring of honor tables that don't seem to ever break, unfortunately for those guys. Um, and, and yeah, I also liked, like, like, uh, Joe, you mentioned that I posted that, uh, clip on Twitter of Austin Aries taking the big flip bump for the Larry. And I said, you know, Aries was an underrated bumper. And it's funny because I got a lot of people, including his former stable mate in the resilience, uh, Eric Stevens saying, yeah, when he felt like it. So, I mean, I, I will say a lot of wrestlers, you know, when you praise Austin Aries are not, you know, they don't, uh, you know, Austin Aries has a lot of people that don't like him personally. I will say the advantage of being a fan is I don't have to, like, I don't have bad memories of Austin Aries. I just have good match memories. So I can kind of easily separate it, but I can understand if you had to work with him from all the stories that maybe you're, if you, it's not as fun to watch him wrestle a match. Um, the thing I really didn't like about this match, though, was there's the, one of the key spots is, Aries actually hits two 450s in this match. One's the finish, but the first one isn't, and it isn't because Julius Smokes pulls out Aries during the cover. And Julius Smokes, a lot of people in Ring of Honor have done this, but Julius Smokes is like the biggest offender of this. He makes no effort to hide this from the ref. He pulls the guy out mid to three count. The ref is clearly seeing it. And then he hits Austin Aries, like as the referee is watching, like he gives the ref no deniability. Like, you just have to ignore it. because This is an ROH and, problem going back a long time. Like, these inconsistent rules. Yeah, and, and I feel like there was the time we talked about where Ricky Steamboat was telling them in 2004 at some point, like, you gotta do do better to give the rest more credibility. And it felt like for a few shows, we noticed that they were trying harder, and it felt like they immediately have, like, gone back on that. Because, like, Smoke's here 
he doesn't care if the ref sees and they're making zero effort. And I feel like it, it's such a key spot in the match because it's a spot that must have been pre-planned because immediately after that, that's when Danielson comes out to chase smokes away. The fact that you couldn't come up with any slightly imaginative way to hide what smokes was doing. Like there's just, uh, just zero imagination in that. But overall, I still thought very good match and credit to that crowd for still being loud for it at the end after what must have been like a long, not always enjoyable night. Um, I, th- I think you and I have liked that match pretty equally. I think our difference is that I like the uh, Gibson strong match more. But, but I, but yeah. I think I think I think I pretty much feel the same way you do about that match. And also, I mentioned it was funny. They were still wrestling on the special light blue and yellow New Japan canvas they had on for yes, the, right. uh, the previous right. match because they apparently, according to people there, they just didn't want to go to the trouble of switching canvases back for one match. So New Japan presents Austin Aries versus Homicide, I guess. Um, after the match... Um, Homicide, um, Aries wants to shake Homicide's hand. He wanted to shake it before the start of the match, which is kind of an interesting thing, because Aries is supposed to be kind of a heel, but Homicide just spit in Aries' hand. After the match, Homicide teases that he's going to shake, but instead he just flips him the bird and walks away. And that's the end of the show. We don't even get a, like, a post-show, um, interview or anything. Again, this is a very tight squeeze to fit all of this in into three hours, but they got it done. So, before I get your thoughts on the show, I'll read a couple quotes from a people that otherwise on the show from the PW torch gave the policy complimented the spanky versus Brian Danielson match that opened the Asbury park event quote spanky versus Brian Danielson was such a great match. And I believe it will get match of the year consideration. Sapolsky says I was very happy with all the matches except for a couple of the tournament matches, James Gibson versus Roderick strong black tiger versus Alex Shelley, black tiger versus Brian Danielson, the tag team scramble, the no DQ brawl with the saints and the embassy and the tag title match were all good to great. The night ended on a high note with a tremendous title match between Austin Aries and homicide. This night may actually go down as one of the most important nights of Austin Aries ring of honor career as he proved he could go on in the main event after a very long show and still hold the crowd and deliver a match that had people on their feet so late in the night. And then some schmuck named Joe Gagney had a live report and he wrote, Afterwards, our bus gives American Dragon, Kendo Kashin, and Marquez, Marquez a lift to their hotel. Kashin did not wear his mask in the bus, but did wear a towel over his head until we got inside. It was weird sitting with the guy after we all badmouthed him at the show, but he didn't seem depressed or anything. Dragon is just a way cool guy. I sat in the back of the bus, so I didn't get a chance to chat, but I heard him discussing why The Two Towers was the best Lord of the Rings movie, and if he should sell fake beards at shows... I'd buy one. I agree so with I, I agree I agree with him about the two towers for the record. <laughs> Joe, um that is a that is an amazing little anecdote there first off. <laughs> I am so glad you have recorded that for history. I'm glad we get to amplify that a bit on our show. Um Joe, since you were you're the guest, I think you should say first. What did you think about the show watching it back? And at the time, considering that for you it was like a special event to go on a bus trip on WrestleMania weekend, like did you feel in the bus on the way home listening to Danielson talk about the two towers? Like, did you feel like it was like, did you regret this or did you feel like, you know, that was still worth going out on the bus trip for this show? I think I felt it was still worth it, even though it wasn't quite what we had hoped it would be. Cause it was, you know, back in my young single days, it was WrestleMania weekend. Like why not have a little adventure? I'd never done a bus trip kind of anything like this before. So if, 
it was something I'd done on the on the regular. Maybe I would have felt differently, but it's a little adventure. Yeah, you know, I, I was I was content overall with the quality of the show. And looking back now, you know, the the crux of the show was built around is ultimately seen as a failure just because of who won and the 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 repercussions of that or, or lack thereof. But I, I think this is still a strong show. There's a lot of good wrestling on this show, and even the even the stuff that's not technically good is kind of weirdly fascinating in its own way, but there's a lot of good... We've talked about the different styles of wrestling, and believe me, if you like wrestling, the show is wall-to-wall wrestling. There's hardly any downtime whatsoever. So, yeah, I would, you know... There are other shows that are probably good, but, you know, they're, they're just good. They're not interesting beyond that. But this show is, is good and interesting in, in its own weird way. That, that's a really interesting point. Um, Matt, I'll let you get final thoughts, so I'll go next on this. I'll just say... um. I, I, I agree a lot with Joe, and I feel like uh, listening to the uh, an honorable mention podcast about this. I think uh, Shane Hagedorn said that this this DVD didn't particularly sell well. Was his recollection um, that you know it probably only sold its initial run, and they never went to reprints for it. And I remember this being one that would come up in sales a lot. I, I feel like this this wasn't one people I saw a lot of people talk about or stuff and it, it's kind of remembered in a negative light but yeah like going to what Joe said looking back apart from the Dragon Soldier B matches this is kind of wall-to-wall good to wrestling with one great match and a couple that I think are close to great and I, I I feel like this is a show that kind of gets underrated because of the specter of of, of the of the booking. Uh, it's almost like imagine if you had a movie and it was a really good movie, maybe not the greatest movie you ever seen, but a pretty darn good movie, except for a chase scene in the middle. Now imagine the the chase scene in the middle is twenty minutes long, and now imagine the movie is called best chase scene you've ever seen. And I, I feel like that's the problem the show had is <laughs> the show is called you know best of American Super Juniors. The one thing that was horrible on the show is what the show is built around, named after, what it was hyped for. And unfortunately, I think that kind of brings the sh- in the people's minds that brings the show down. But I feel like in a different world, that wouldn't be a problem. And also, I, I really feel like it- I kind of fantasy book in my head if if Dragon Soldier B's not in this tournament, and they have someone else in in his spot, and there's one more great match on the show, like one more great one, we'd probably be talking about this as a show of the year contender. But instead, we get a tournament that fizzles out, and um three man matches in the middle of a show in important spots. But I, I would say this is a show. This is a, a pretty good show that's worth watching. And I would even say, watch the dragon soldier B matches. Cause they're weird novelties. Like Joe said, it's, it, they're interesting and they're all edited uh, at least the, the, the last two and the first one short. So they're not painful to watch. I would say this is a pretty good show. And it's, it's unfortunately it's, it has to live with kind of, the Dragon Soldier B ghost haunting it. Um, what did you think, Matt? Yeah, I agree with both of you. I, I also, you know, think that the Dragon Soldier B stuff, like I said, because time has passed, it's, it's not as annoying anymore. You know, it's just kind of odd and interesting. Um, so, like, with that being the case, um, yeah, I think the whole show has stuff worth watching. And, and I actually probably liked it more than you because I thought there were two great matches on the show and some other very good ones. So I... Um, so I think this, you know, the first hour of the show is really, really good. The the last match is 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 quite good. I thought the tag title match was good. Um, 
Uh, you know, Danielson versus Black Tiger, good match. The the Dragon Soldier B stuff is weird and entertaining. Um, yeah, I think this is this is you know a, a, a pretty a pretty darn good show. I think that there were sev- there have been several shows in 2005 so far that were not as good as this one. I probably yeah. like this show better than um, definitely better than Trios Tournament, better than It All Begins, better than Back to Basics. You know, maybe even better than one or two of the uh, of the anniversary shows. Um, you know, I think this is a darn good show. Um, it's just you know, like you said, plagued by a, a a strange oddity in booking that isn't as bothersome so many years later. So I think that the show's even better now, probably than it was then. Yeah, and so I'm I'm glad we got to do this review. I mean, that we eventually got to it. I'm glad that uh, hopefully some people give it a shot because there's some really good wrestling on this show. And, and, just, and it's just uh, it's a super interesting show. Like no matter yeah, how like, you slice it, it's just like an interesting, novel, memorable event. If you're like into the history of indies or Ring of Honor or whatever, there is literally no Ring of Honor show like this show. Yes, and there probably never will be again. So that brings us to the end of our show. So for plugs, if you want to get in contact with us, it is we have an email at throughtheyears at gmail.com. That's T-H-R-O-H. You can get in, ta- in contact with me or Matt on Twitter. I'm at Trevor Dame on Twitter. Matt's at Mayor MGF. Um, we have a, a, a forum post on the Pro Wrestling Only forum on, in the plug section if you want to send a line there uh joe what do you, you i i always run down your your shows at the start but do you have anything specific you'd like to plug or your social media yes you can follow me on twitter at joe gagne g-a-g-n-e for the last name and uh the five star match game is my main project right now it's the pro wrestling trivia quiz show we've had our 20th episode is actually coming out this wednesday and we do kind of a look at it's a little different. We do February wrestling, so that would be Super Brawl and some of those early No Way Outs, so kind of a biathlon of wrestling trivia. We've had uh, Matt and Trevor on a bunch. Uh, <laughs> if you wish to hear Trevor struggle mightily, this is a show for you. <sighs> but, um, one of my favorite bits of feedback, someone said, uh, you know, the Starcade episode, uh, David Bixen Spain was a guest. Someone said, has there been a bigger upgrade than Dame to Bix? But someone said, I'd rather listen to Trevor Dame than Bix, even if Dame is a sinkhole of knowledge. So you have yes. your defenders. Uh, yes, uh, yes, thank you. That, that, that's a great defender, Joe. Thank you so much for bringing that up on the air. Thank, uh, you know, let's just say that if I'm ever on your show again, I, I, I have some plans. But, can, um, can, can, we, can we change the name of our podcast to A Sinkhole of Knowledge? It's <laughs> a good subtitle, yeah. <laughs> Well, uh, a title that's only slightly better than that will be the show we are reviewing next time on Through the Years, because that's called Stalemate. Because what's more appetizing (laughs) from an entertainment standpoint than a stalemate? You might as well just call it Ring of Honor Kissing Your Sister. But actually, the show on paper sounds pretty good. you got got Ares versus Jamie Noble. You've got uh, Danielson versus Homicide in the fourth of their best of five. I'm I'm sure it will be better than the title indicates. But until next, until that time, until next time. Have a good time. Have a great time.